welcome to The Lux Files, a podcast for occultists about occultists. I'm your host, Sean, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to subscribe to The Lux Files wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all the new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Lux Files. And with me today is devotional polytheist, iconographer, kemeticist, Pamasu Nafra Uwa. Uwa! Hello, hello, my friend. How are you? Hello, hello. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. I'm Thank so, you so excited. Much for inviting. Thank you so no, much. No, it's my pleasure. You know, I'm such a planner that um, I. Uh, uh, when I'm when I'm booking people uh, for the podcast, like it's weeks out. Like I contact them like four weeks, five weeks before they for before the week that I actually interview uh, my guests, and which is great because you know I don't want you know a couple of days because my podcast I drop the episodes every Monday, and I don't want to be sitting here like Sunday night like oh you know I don't have a guest uh, for for next week. So it's great, you know, uh, to, to plan for that. But at the same time, it, it kind of kills me because I so look forward to these conversations. I'm like, oh my God, I have to wait four weeks now. You know, when, when someone's like, yeah, sure, I'm going to be on your podcast. I'm like, okay, I'll talk to you in like a month. So that kind of sucks. So yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad today's finally the day and uh, we're here and uh, we're going to be talking and uh, you're a fascinating character. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I'm really looking forward to this. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, how's your weather? Okay. So the weather over here, we're getting the heavy smoke from fires in, in surrounding states. Right. Yeah. Which blew in this week, which was not good because I suffer from aller- seasonal allergies, which are horrifying. Right. So right, right. my voice has been attacked. Um, you know, I have this thing going on in my throat and then my allergies went crazy. So hopefully I sound decent for people and uh, I don't have to clear my throat a lot. Uh, but yeah, the weather is 103 in the shade. Mm-hmm. Very hot. I'm in the middle of the desert. I'm not sure. Uh, just for everybody, I live on it, right on the edge of the northwestern Utah desert, literally on the border between Nevada and Utah. Yeah, and I live literally in the very middle of nowhere in a place called West Wendover. If you've never heard of it, don't worry about it because nobody's heard of it. You know, it, it's funny because I knew you lived in Nevada, but um, mm. I I didn't really uh, think about where exactly you live and I have one of those useless piece of information in my head that your corner of Nevada that little tiny corner is not in the same time zone as the west of Nevada the the, the rest of Nevada which is a useless piece of information but yet I knew that West Wendover was in mountain time um for some strange reason i knew that but you're actually closer like people are thinking okay so uh he's in nevada so you automatically think las vegas but like you're close like to drive you're Mm -hmm. closer to salt lake city than you are to 
Las Vegas, you know, like you're you're, like, like that's your Northeast corner, very Mm -hmm. remote. And one of my questions is why? Oh, you know what? Not like it's a bad thing. I did, you know. No, let, let me really quick girl. turn um, off the volume on my phone because yeah. that was very rude. I personally okay. love the desert, so I'm not like why like you're crazy, but no, I, I believe me. Uh, I've had moments where I say to myself, I say to my daddies, "Why?" Um, in in a humorous way. Yeah. Um. I had a about a 10 year, 11 year history with Nevada, moved here uh, because of some very, very dear friends who are leaders in the temple of ISIS to which I was ordained. And we moved from, we moved from Sonoma County with our friends to, to Reno, Nevada. And then my husband who works for the Pepper Mill Corporation who owns a bunch of casinos. Uh, they own a big casino in Reno. He got an opportunity that came up out here because they own three casinos out here. Right. They, this is a casino town. There are five casinos and Pepper Mill owns three of those casinos. So my husband being a, a supervisor for the company, there was an, an amazing opportunity that they presented him with for us to, to come out here. And so, because it was too good to, to um, it really was too good to pass up, but we really went through a, a long period of, of, of really asking the gods for direction and asking for, is this the right thing? And to give us signs. And we went through a huge process and, and it really was revealed to us. This, this is the, the direction we need to go in. And so we picked up, we moved and we came out here. And that's a lot of because for the size of, of uh, the town. That's, that's a lot of casinos. It is, but it's hugely lucrative. In fact, Reno is is a giant city compared to where I'm at. And Reno is already small. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been to Reno, it's a nice city. It's expanding right now, but it's it's not a huge city. Yeah. Uh, and West Wendover, there's just a couple thousand people, I think, living in this town. And most of them are immigrants from Mexico and they're casino workers. And um, the casinos here make so just one of the casinos here makes several times more money every single day than the main casino in Reno makes in a, in a month. It's, it's amazing that the, the casinos oh. out here are actually making even more than, than Vegas casinos are making right now. It's, it's, it's very lucrative for them out here. So the opportunity for casino workers here is a very high standard of living compared to Vegas even, compared to any of the Indian gaming casinos, um, compared to Reno. This is a very good living out here for casino workers. So that's the short story Mm. of how I ended, ended up here. 
Interesting. Uh, oh, I can hear I can hear myself through your speakers or something. Can you? Okay, I'm gonna. Okay, now I can't. Because it sounds perfect to me. Okay. It, no, there was some kind of weird. Oh. Um. Whatever. Any, anyways, it's not happening now. Okay. okay. Um. So. One thing I wanted to ask you, well, I mean, there like there's so much we're gonna cover, and this is kind of getting halfway through your story, but I, I just really want to know this now is so you're um you're ordained through the fellowship of ISIS. I correct? am. Yeah, I am, yes. So have you ever been to the ISIS Oasis in California? Absolutely. In fact, I used to live there. Okay. Um, the reason why I was asking, I was so eager to to uh, find out, was uh, a friend of mine lived there for I think it was like fourteen months. He was there. He, he's uh, here from uh, here, Canada, and he was there for fourteen months um, mm. teaching. So I was just curious. Yes, um, and that that was definitely something I was going to cover. Yeah, um, it's a huge ISIS oasis. The the ISIS oasis sanctuary, the Temple of ISIS. Um, which is actually separate from the Fellowship of ISIS. And even within our community, there, there are a lot of people who are very confused. The, the Fellowship of ISIS, which was founded by, um, co-founded by Lady Olivia Robertson, who, who has passed on, who she ordained me. Uh, the Fellowship of ISIS is a, is a separate branch. It is, it is its own theologically and, and in every other way. It is its own unique manifestation of, of the goddess tradition. The Temple of Isis, California, is what sometimes we describe as the legal arm or the legal branch of the Isian community. Okay. Fellowship of Isis is not, Lady Olivia never legalized it. It was impossible for her to legalize it because the Fellowship of Isis exists. There's 15,000 members, maybe more than that now. And we have clergy in countries all over the world, including Africa. And it, it just isn't possible to legalize an organization that way. And Lady Olivia really didn't want a central leadership or central authority. She didn't think of herself as being an authority figure. She never took that role, even though other people have projected that onto her. She was mm. very humble. She was very down to earth. She was um, very self-effacing and, and never wanted to be in a position of authority. She was simply doing work that she felt that she had been given by the goddess. And so Fellowship of Isis is, is very much, it's its own manifestation of that work. Temple of Isis, which of course I was going to get into the nitty gritty of, of that, was founded by Lady Lorian Vignet, who who was my my first teacher um, from the time that I was before I was ten years old until she passed away uh, seven years ago. Now she was my she was my lifelong teacher, and um, she founded Temple of Isis as a legal entity prior to meeting Lady Olivia and being given sort of a mandate from Lady Olivia to help the Fellowship of ISIS have a voice in the United States. And because Temple of ISIS is legal, members of the Fellowship of ISIS could travel to um, California, they could travel to ISIS Oasis, and they could be legally ordained to be mm -hmm. able to do their work. 
So there are two lineages that I carry. One is from the Temple of Isis, California, and the other one is from Fellowship of Isis, where, which, in which I'm ordained as a priest and a priest hierophant by Lady Olivia. So, um, and then I also carry the lineage of my other teacher, Lady Zarita Zook, who's a very well-known priestess of Isis, and she founded Temple of Isis, Nevada. And so I, I have inherited that a lineage from her as well. <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah, no, I mean, we'll, we're definitely going to kind of get into that and, uh, you know, kind of do a, try to do more of a, like, chronological thing i was just yeah. really curious just because um like i said just with with my friend having lived there for i think it was like 14 months teaching so i was just curious so yeah so we're gonna um uh stick to my my form we're gonna get back on track and stick to my my regular format um i always like to uh begin by learning um uh with my guests kind of like like that that moment that set you on your magical slash spiritual path, um, you know, whether it was in childhood or adulthood, whatever, but sort of like that, that, that seminal moment or period that kind of, kind of took you on your path. So, um, so yeah, so let's uh, begin there. Okay. I think that I was born with a chip on my shoulder. Um, it, it's the easiest way for me to explain how, looking back, how I felt as a child, restless. And I seem to have been born with, with this feeling of being very dissatisfied. And I, I am conscious of that now. I, I look back and I remember when I was just really, really little and I, I was so unhappy for some reason. I was so dissatisfied. Um, to give people some background, I was raised in a very, very tight-knit religious, traditional religious family, Baptist Christianity, but the brand of Baptist Christianity in which I was raised and which a number of generations going back, every single generation in my family uh, on my mother's side the young men, there's always been a son who has taken up the mantle to be a preacher. And oh. so going back generations in my family's history, there has always been a, at least one, sometimes more, um, always male, um, male child, a son who would become a, a, a minister, a preacher, and who would even found a church. And my the history of my family has a lot of founders of churches in various places of the United States. So I was raised in this brand though of Christianity in which it was apocalyptic. Mm. So the consciousness that we were raised in of what was going on in the world, politically everything was these are the last days. These are the final days. And there are the people of Christ who, who are, whose names are written in the book of life and who have been saved. And there are the people who are followers of the fallen one. They are the disciples of Satan and, and you know, they will be annihilated by, by God. And 
all of the suffering and all of the things going on in the world, all world events when I was growing up, which, which would happen on the news, everything, politically, everything, my parents would say, this is a sign. This is another sign of, of, of you know, God's kingdom is, is coming and Christ will wipe the sinners off the face of the earth. And the suffering that, that you see is what, the, this is the wages of sin. Um, and, and so the family that I was raised in was, was a family in which every member was expected to memorize scripture mm -hmm. and to be a voice, an evangelic, evangelizing voice for Christ. And we would, this, my first memories of, of learning anything were of being taught the Bible and being taught verses. And we were rewarded money, we were rewarded things when we memorized verses and we were encouraged to write verses every day. And this was an exercise that we had to do. We got home from school um, before we did our regular homework. Um, my father or mother would have written down the Bible verse for the day and we had to write it however many times they said and they expected us to have it memorized by the time they would come home from work and for us to then give a sermon basically on the meaning of that verse. Um, I was raised in a family where God and Christ and the devil and demons and angels were physically real. These were not parables. These were not metaphors. These were not deeper, deeper spiritual meanings behind the words. The King James Version of the Bible was the infallible, inerrant word of God, black and white as it said. And we were to live by the gospels, literally live by the gospels. And my, both my parents were very active in the church. My father was a leader in the youth community. We attended church every single Sunday. We attended church every single Wednesday for what was called Awana, um, which is short for approved workmen are not ashamed. I cannot believe I still have this stuff in my head. This is <laughs> it, it never goes, it, it never goes away. And, yeah. and, and it's something I can kind of try to laugh at now, but seriously, um, I think, I think that being completely out of it and being a liberated adult and, and a person who can think for himself now, I realized that this was a cult in which I was raised and I'm getting to why I think that it's a cult, but, um, we were taught the physical reality of hell. And every night before we went to bed, we were read stories from the Bible. And then my father or mother would tell us what would happen to us if we doubted the word of God. So we were taught, it's not through works that you were saved. It is through your belief and that to question even for a second, to question the validity and the physical reality and the literal truth of the gospels, even for a second, 
you were signing your soul over. You were consigning your soul to Satan. And we were taught about the reality of hell, the physical reality of what would happen to us and the, and the description of hell, which, um, you know, Dante-esque, but the roasting of flesh and the gnashing of teeth. And these were things my parents taught us when we were very, very little. Um, a lot of parents teach their kids, you know, little, the tooth fairy and Santa Claus, we weren't taught those things. We were, we were taught about what would happen to our very bodies in hell. Mm. And something very interesting is that my parents focused much more on Satan and met much more on what would happen when the confrontation happened between Christ and, and Satan, um, you know, in, in the last days, that was, that was very, very pivotal. So actually when I was growing up, much more about Satan was taught to us than ever about the life of Christ. Right. Um, Christ was a peripheral figure because this world, as we were raised, as I was taught, this world belongs to Satan. The material world is of the devil and our very bodies are, are belong to Satan because we are born through sin into this world. And this world is sinful. This world is falling completely away from God. And it is only the Bible and having access to the infallible inerrant word of God that we could be saved. And we were not allowed to question right. the doctrine that yeah. we were taught. Uh, my mother, her father, who was a Bible preacher for 50 years, he was very, very strict with my mother growing up. Um, and she went through her path of rebellion against that. But she was raised on the word and on the truth of the Bible being your only salvation. And it, it, that, that conservative, those conservative values, which have been held by every generation of my family going back as, as long as, as my family history that I've ever heard, these have been passed down. And so I was raised in an environment where our reading material was, was very highly restricted and controlled. Television was something we had, but my parents kept, actually they, they kept the TV unplugged and they put the plug in a lock box so that we could not plug the TV back in. <laughs> and we were allowed television that was controlled that was agreed upon um if we were watching a program if my parents saw us watching something they felt was unchristian we were you know instantly they would say you know okay we're we're changing the channel this is right. not acceptable this is not what christian people watch and the older i got the more conservative the more restrictions there were on on my brother and and my sister and i 
it seemed to me growing up that everyone else in my family accepted this. My, my sister accepted this. She was always very religious. My brother well, was five years younger than me. So he was always very ambivalent and quiet. He's now, he's an atheist and he's a Buddhist and he rejects all forms of organized religion. And I think that part of that is a reaction to the way we grew up. And I understand that yeah. very, very much. Yeah. Um, so the reason I was kind of setting that so people could understand where I came from is that I remember from the youngest time of awareness, having this chip on my shoulder and this very questioning nature. I'm a very rebellious person. I, I don't accept authority just because it's authority. I am all for rules and discipline and, but they have to make sense. Mm -hmm. They have to make sense. And I have to choose. <laughs> That's another thing. Freedom of choice is very important to me. Autonomy over one's mind, autonomy over what one does with one's body. These are very key things to me. And I've always seemed to have those values which do not exist in my family. Right. <laughs> my family is Republican. My family is deeply entrenched in traditional Christian values that have no place in the 21st century in my perspective. Um, that's just my point of view, uh, based on how I was raised. And I, I seem to have had this chip on my shoulder. I questioned and challenged everything, and it got me into a lot of trouble. Um, every time I would question the Bible, I questioned the resurrection once, and I wanted to understand physically what happened to Christ between the time that he was taken down from the cross and put in the tomb to the time that Sunday morning or Saturday night, whenever, whenever it was that he slipped out of that tomb, did rigor mortis set in? Did the same physical processes that govern life and death govern his body? Right. Um, and my mother was horrified that I would ask that question. And I, I just remember being slapped so hard and I was so scared by that. I, I didn't understand what I had done wrong. And she just said something about the beatific body of Christ and, and, and it being incorruptible and that, that to ask questions about Christ as if he was a human being was, was defiling the word of God. And she went off onto this big harangue. And, and this happened every single time I asked questions. And I kind of became known as a troublemaker in my family. And troublemaker by, we went to, when I was very little, we went, we went to Sunday school called the Buzzy Bees. Um, we were little bees that for Christ, we were, you know, in the hive and we were being trained to, I know, we were being we're being so creepy. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just creepy. It really is. It's creepy. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's creepy, but it, it also, it, it, you know, looking back on it, 
the effects, the effects, the negative effects of what I went through with indoctrination. I have had to do so much work, so much work to purify myself and purge myself from the indoctrination that I, because it wasn't my choice. And, and that to me is where I think the whole morality and ethical question behind this is for me, is that it wasn't something I was given a choice to receive or not. It was something that was forced on me and expected of me. And that to me was an act of violence. There's nothing wrong with parents sharing their religion and their faith with their children. There's nothing wrong with them saying, this is what we believe. This is, these are the teachings that we have. There's nothing wrong with parents raising their kids, telling them about what they believe. But I think to refuse the ability to choose, we all, in my opinion, should have autonomy over our own spiritual destiny, over our own conscience. We should be able to choose from right and wrong what we know to be right and wrong. We should be able to question and explore. And we should be able to choose whether or not we want religion in our life. We should be able to choose the values, religious values. If, if we want to adopt them, that's our choice. That should never be something that is forced on us. And yeah. even yeah. as a child. Yeah, of course. Even as a child, I, I seemed to know this, but there's something else to it that plagued me as a child. I remember being very little, four or five years old even, and sitting in church and listening to preaching. And I was aware of my conscience. I was aware of my conscience at that age. I know I was aware. And I remember thinking, I am being lied to. I am being lied to. And I also asked myself other questions, like, where are the others? When I was little, I, I had this concept of the others, which I now realize I know was, I was thinking about the gods, but I didn't have a word for any divine being other than God and Christ and angels. Um, there was Satan and, and then there were the legions of demons. So I had those concepts, but as far as any plural Godhead, I, I didn't have language for that, but I remember asking myself where the, where the others were. And I remember thinking how wrong all of this was to, to me. It, it felt wrong. And I felt like I knew that it was wrong and that there was something else. I just didn't know what that something else was. Right, 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 right. So how did you um, sort of like discover that something else? Mm -hmm. You know, especially, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a question I would ask anyone, but especially uh -huh. growing up in that kind of environment, uh -huh. I would think getting to that point would be even that much more challenging. So how did, how did that process come about where, where you kind of discovered there was 
something else and, you know. So my father was finishing his master's degree at San Diego State University for anthropology. Interestingly enough, my father was an anthropologist. <laughs> and this is the weird dichotomy of, of, of my father. And it's, it is still very difficult for me to talk about him, but I will. Um, a brilliant artist. He was a watercolorist. He was an oil painter and he was absolutely masterful. He was an incredible artist. And he also was immensely gifted as, as an anthropologist and, and as a student of archeology. span And why I think that is unusual is that on the one hand, he was so puritanical about Christianity, which <laughs> I learned was a, a disguise for something else. And I'll get to that. Mm. But I always wondered how he could, on the one hand, investigate other human belief systems and the remnants of those and physical anthropology and all that entails to try and understand other cultures and other societies in the way that they developed, which includes their religion, their magical practices, all of those things. And he studied all of those things. And yet we were taught that any other belief, any other practice, any other ideals outside of the gospels were of Satan and were something that a Christian person would not absorb. Right. So that I found very interesting. But to answer your question, so he kept a huge library, which was what influenced my love of books, which you see less than a quarter of our library behind me. I think we have probably close to 2000 volumes. Um, so my love of reading did come from my father and I remember, this was right around when I was six years old. I was looking for pictures of bald eagles because when I was almost six years old, just thereabouts, I had an obsession with uh, birds of prey, which is something that continues to this day, even in my spiritual work. But I was looking in the World Book Encyclopedia set, which my father, we owned seven or eight different complete encyclopedia sets. And I was looking in the World Book Encyclopedia for eagles. So I was looking in the E volume because I wanted to find pictures of bald eagles. And I had a really, really bad habit when I was young of liking pictures and books and ripping them out. Uh oh. <laughs> and pinning them to my little bulletin board next to my bed. So I kind of wanted to find pictures of bald eagles and take them out and pin them up. So I remember looking through the E volume and of course I opened up to the section on Egypt. It was the first time that I had encountered anything Egyptian. 
And of course, I remember the pictures. It was a two page spread of idols that had been dug up of different Egyptian deities. And it had the labels for the different gods and goddesses there. And it was an electric moment for me where a light bulb went off. And that chip on my shoulder, that restlessness and that feeling of not belonging and of things being wrong, all of a sudden I felt that something clicked and something fell into place that was very, very powerful for me. And I had never experienced anything like that before. And something happened to me where I just knew that these were my gods and that this is where I had come from. So my father got home from work. He was also a, my father was also an engineer. He was something of a, a Leonardo, a Renaissance man. Um, he was an engineer. He worked for General Dynamics Corporation in San Diego. He also was an architect. He designed a lot of mansions, a lot of big houses for, for people with a lot of money. Um, they hired him to design these amazing houses. And so he got home from work and he had this huge drafting table. And he's sitting at his drafting table working on a project for work. And I went over to him and I plopped that book, that e-volume open to this spread of the Egyptian gods and goddesses, these idols of Egyptian deities. And I said, this is it. This is where I'm from. These are, these are mine. These are, this is where I came from. And he really humored me and thought that was so cute. And, <laughs> and, and, and thought that was something else. And he wasn't surprised because as a child, I, I went through these periods where first it was the American flag. I was obsessed with the American flag and, and I wanted every American flag that, um, that I, I saw in stores and I would scream and I'd throw tantrums if my mom wouldn't buy one. Um, and then it was cowboys and Indians, um, you know, everything cowboys and Indians. Then it was dinosaurs, okay? Um, it, it was dinosaurs and I was obsessed with dinosaurs and I collected them. And then it was ancient Egypt. So from that time on, anything to do with Egypt, I was ravenous and I couldn't get enough of. I went through every book in, in my father's library that I could try, you know, find anything on the Egyptians. And I would just read and read. I would take the books to my bed at night under the covers and I would read um, or just look at pictures this, as I got older, because initially I, I was looking more at the pictures when I was really, really little. I was just looking at all these pictures and getting into trouble because I was tearing out pictures. And, and um, but as I got older, I was reading everything. And there was a library down the street from my mother's um, office where she worked. And oftentimes we'd get out of school and 
we would get off the bus and walk down to the library and my mother would then um, pick us up at the library and, and take us home. And so I, I checked out every book that I could on ancient Egypt, on, on mummies, anything to do with ancient Egypt. And I was completely obsessed. And, and my parents didn't really think it was odd because of all those other things. They just thought this is another thing right, that, yeah. that, that our son is obsessed with and he'll get over it. He got over flags, he got over cowboys and Indians, you know. Oh, and Star Wars. I mean, but you know, I, mean I had had all the Star Wars action figures I'd had, you know. So they but there's a, there's a difference between being obsessed with the American flag and being obsessed with Egyptian gods and with your parents being so religious, there was no, they, there was nothing, no red flag for them at all. Uh, no, there wasn't. And that, that's the thing. And there wasn't for a while until, until other incidents happened. Um, I, there was a book that I checked out from the library and I actually have a copy of that book now. And it, it had this amazing spread in it of, of these kind of paintings of Egyptian deities done as if the gods were kind of alive. And it has them all gathered together in a group. And I remember seeing that for the first time and I was so struck by it. I, because I felt these were the others, mm -hmm. those others mm -hmm. I was telling you about. Yeah. I yeah. recognized that these were those others. So I ripped these page pages out of, out of the, the library book and I pinned them up on my little bulletin board next to my bed. And every night before bed, when I was supposed to say my prayers to the Christian God, I started to say my prayers to the Egyptian deities. And I felt, it, when I was praying to those gods, I felt that chip on my shoulder. I felt that restlessness go away. Mm -hmm. I felt a sense of, of peace and I, I didn't feel agitated. I was very agitated as a child, like I said, and, and I was put on Ritalin. I, I came from the Ritalin generation. So every child, if you're hyperactive and hyper creative, like I was, oh, let's medicate, put on Ritalin. So I was put on Ritalin because I was hyperactive, hyper talkative, hyper creative. Right. Um, I think that's an American thing. It, it must be. Yeah, it must be. But if you kind of look up the Ritalin generation, you look up that controversy in, in recent years, there's been a lot of studies and a lot of things done about that. Hmm. Um, and so what happened one unfortunate night was my father, my father caught me, my father caught me in the act of, um, praying to these pictures I had torn out of this book. And I got one hell of a thrashing and I, I got harangue and, and lecture. He brought out the Bible and went to the Old Testament, went to Exodus and went to what happened to the children of Israel when they worshiped the golden calf. And, 
and then he, this was when I was seven and a half about. And I remember he had me fill up one of those small legal yellow um, legal notepads mm-hmm. of the Ten Commandments. I had to fill the entire thing of the Ten Commandments. And like that was notepad, not like a page, like the entire notebook. The entire, the entire oh, notebook. Every, every single, I was, I was put on restriction and every single day after school, I was not allowed to do anything even before I did my homework. I had to go to my room and I had to fill out, you know, whatever, to, wherever I left off, I had to fill that out. Um, and it, it was very traumatizing experience for me. And I, I realized then, I realized that I was going to have to keep my opinions to myself. I was going to have to be obedient outwardly, be an obedient Christian son, be the, the child that <clears throat> my parents wanted. Otherwise, they would, I, I would, I, there, I would be punished. Um, my parents believed in, in physical punishment. And, and this is something from the generation that I grew up in. Um, this is thought of very differently now, I know. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy, but I grew up, my mother was a child in the 50s and she grew up where your parents laid down the law. And when you did something wrong, you were physically punished for it. Um, at our dining room table for dinner, we were not allowed to talk unless our parents, they would ask questions, how was your day at school, whatever. We had to speak when spoken to, um, chew with your mouth closed, you know, sit with your hands, you're not, no elbows. If we got out of line, um, if we spoke out of turn, I mean, my father would just backhand with his fist. He would just backhand us. You know, he, my parents um, were very firm believers in um, physical punishment as a way in which you teach children not to do something. And there are also other things like if we spoke, if we cussed at all, if we said any cuss word, my mother, my father didn't do this, but my mother did. Um, If we cussed, my mother would make us hold Tabasco sauce in our mouth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there would always be Bible verses with that. <laughs> so something that I learned. Hey, it okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something I learned very early on was that pain and the doctrine, pain and God, pain and, 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 and religion go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. So religion is, is about pain. It's about guilt and it's about suffering. Yeah. And this was something that we were very much taught. And it, and that included what, what came down to our own bodies too, as far as, as, um, as we got older development and puberty and touching ourselves. I mean, um, the Bible was all over that process. Yeah. Back to answering your question. So, um, my parents indulged my interest in Egyptology as they saw it as something that was healthy because I was reading all of the time and they didn't have to ask me to read, you know, when I had book reports at school, whenever I loved to read. And that was something that has always been part of me. Reading has been a huge part of my development. It always is. At any given moment, I'm reading 10, 15, 20 books. I, I read 
all the time. So to them, so they're looking at this like it's okay because it's it's educational. Uh-huh. But so very much so. But so your father catches you praying to the Egyptian gods. Did yeah. so did their tolerance of all things Egypt go out the window or no, because I, I was able to convince them. Um something that I learned to do in in that household and we'll get to some of the other things um, that happened in my family, but I learned in that family at quite a young age to wear a mask Mm -hmm. that you, in order to survive in this family, in order to have your own mind, you had to wear a disguise you had to tell the adults what they wanted to hear. Right. You had yeah. to obey. You yeah. had to conform. You had to look like you were going to conform. And, and I'm going to tell you that that inspired a deep fire in me to rebel. A deep, deep fire in me to rebel against it. Mm-hmm. And I vowed to myself when I was a child. I remember when I was six and seven years old. I'm going to get out of this. And I'm going to prove that all of this is wrong. I, right. I'm going to rebel against that. And I, I really kept it inside. But well, it's I, funny I kind of- hardcore tactics that, you know, the pain and the punishment and everything that's meant to break you of, of whatever wrong, supposed wrong you're doing. I mean, with you, obviously it, strengthened your resolve and and that's often the case with with those kind of uh punishment tactics is you don't and like they don't well reform isn't a good way because there's nothing there's no reforming but but punching your kid doesn't make your kid a better christian punching your kid makes your kid a better whatever it is they're into you know what I mean? Like it, that, that, that type of, 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 um, philosophy, just, it just mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. And I mean, and you're obviously a case in point because you're sitting here, not as a Christian preacher, but as a cometicist, you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. punch me all you want and work. No. Um, but there's, there's, there's also another backstory a little bit um, that I can drop about about my father and and about his behavior and attitudes. There was going on behind his Christianity. Going behind that is something else about my family. And this this is something that was kept. I, I didn't know about this until I was older. And I I found my father's diary. My brother and I did. And my father wrote a lot of things about his family in there that I had never heard when I was growing up. There was no relationship at all between my mother's family and my father's family. The families did not mix. They did not talk. We never went to any holidays, to any events, never received any cards, never received any gifts, presents from my father's side of the family ever. Never. It was always my mother's side of the family. And it wasn't until I was a teenager and I found my father's journal 
And my father did wind up talking about some of the things in his family and, and the history of his family that I, I kind of understood why the two sides of the family never had anything to do with each other. Because my father, my father's mixed race, his family um, on his father's side um, immigrated from Iran, from the Tehran area, um, pre, before the revolution. Right. Um, before Ayatollah Khomeini came into power. And um, actually his family were Zoroastrians. And so um, they converted to Christianity. And this was all told to me by my, by my father when I was a teenager. And I absolutely could not believe it at all. We were never, ever raised with any knowledge of my father's side of the family. There was never anything. The only thing I knew is that my paternal grandmother had died young of heart failure due to extreme exhaustion and that she had knitted for me a, a beautiful quilt that had been passed down to me. But anything about the family, anything at all, I was never told anything. When did they convert to Christianity? Do you know, like before immigrating or after? I, I don't know. Okay. My father, my father was very ashamed of his of his family history. He he really he was so ashamed of that. And it was not something he wanted us to know, and it's not something that my mother wanted us to know. About the Zoroastrianism? He was ashamed about uh, uh, that. Well, about that and also about, about our racial makeup. My mother did not want us to know anything about that. We were only told about her side of the family. Wow. And my grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother's family, were all Oklahoma people, came from Oklahoma. And my grandfather is Pawnee. And he was raised in, an, in a Catholic orphanage. And that kind of was something that, but they knew who his parents were. I mean, they, they knew that he was, he, was, he was Indian. They knew he was Pawnee. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have had no contact at all. I've never been to, to, to Sweat Lodge. I've never been to Powwow. I've never done anything. I've never met anybody that has said that they're related to my grandfather, that they're his people or anything, none of that. Um, but that was known. That is something that I was raised with. My grandfather did talk about that. And, and it is something that I, that I knew, but my father's family, not a, wow. I was a teenager. I met my grandfather, my paternal grandfather for the first time. And that was, a few months before he died. And my father wanted us, my brother and I, my mother would not go. She would have nothing to do with it. We, my, my father's, um, my father grew up in Ocotillo Wells in El Centro and we drove out to the desert. We drove out there to see him. He was very frail. Um, I, I really liked him. I thought he was a great, a great guy. He was very cowboyish. He had expensive cowboy boots and he was, he's told me interesting stories. Um, 
but my father had had an explosive relationship with his, his father who was very physically abusive. And my father, he told us that he blamed his father for his mother's death. He said his mother, my, my grandma Ava had died of a broken heart that, that because of years of, of emotional and mental abuse. So there was all of this backstory and my father was very, very conflicted. He hated his father. He absolutely hated his father. And he, before his father died, he wanted to make that up. He wanted to be at peace about it. So he yeah. took my brother and I down and we stayed there. And then after he died, after my grandpa died, um, my mom did come down for the funeral. Uh, basically, my father made her. Um, but all of that, just, just to, to show the relevance to my father's character, is that my father was raised where the man owns his, his wife and owns his children. Mm -hmm. um, women do not talk back to men. Women are owned by men. And in my family, absolutely, uh, my father laid down the law. And my mother was not allowed to contradict him. Um, I, I didn't realize the extent of, of the abuse and of the violence and, and of the control that my mother experienced until, until I was much older. I was oblivious to all of this as children are. Children, when you're really little, you, you, might, you don't really understand what adults are doing, but being grown up and looking back on my childhood, so many incidents, so many things. I realize now what was going on with my mother. Yeah. Um, she was a battered woman and she was a woman that was very much being held in a marriage um, against her will towards the end. Um, and so I just wanted to give that background about my father's family because this is how he was raised. And So I conformed, you know, I, 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 I outwardly conformed and I learned early on that you do that with adults. Yeah. Tell adults what they want to hear. You behave, you mind your manners. And then in your mind, behind the scenes, you, you are free and you think and do what you want. Yeah. yeah. So, so as, as a kid, you know, in so outwardly, you're you're the good Christian son, you know, yeah. minding his P's and Q's. But in your head, you're the comedicist, you know, praying to the others. Mm -hmm. When did that like inward um, devotional practice become an outward devotional practice? Like when when did you have more freedom to explore this as a spiritual mm -hmm. path mm -hmm. so it was before my 10th birthday and my family went on a um we went on a day trip during the week to old town san diego which is a historic old district where the whaley house some of the, the original set settlers and original all the history the old history of San Diego. It's a fascinating place. Mm -hmm. And we were at a outdoor pottery 
center called Bohannon's Pottery. And my, my parents were looking at, at pots and things for the outdoor uh, flower beds and everything. And I looked over and saw this building and there was this big sign that um, was black and gold and white. And it had Michelangelo's David on it. And it's a Durgant sculpture studio. And of course I was very familiar with the David. And I thought, ooh, you know, um, interesting. Interesting things to see, more interesting than looking at pots, you know, with my brother and sister. So I went over and looked in the window of the store and I saw all of these statues of Egyptian deities. And Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Lux Files. I'm not just the host of this podcast. I'm also the owner of Lalo Gonzalez. I make beeswax and scented spell candles, loose stick and liquid incense, anointing rolls and bath salts. So once you're done listening to this episode, why don't you head on over to my website at www.lalokanzawin.com and check out my products. For your convenience, the link to the website is also in the show notes. Of things, Tutankhamun's treasures, of reproductions of Tutankhamun's treasures, including the life-size death mask and everything. And the place was closed for whatever reason. I went absolutely nuts. And I just hung on to the windows, had bars on them. I was hanging on and saying, mom, 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 you've got to come over here. And I just screamed and screamed and screamed to my mom and she came running. I said, look at, look at this, look at this. And so she looked in and it was, you know, she saw what I saw and, and I said, you know, can we go in? And she said, it's closed. And, 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 you know, she said, but there's an, you know, there's information, there's a number. So she wrote down the information and I said, can we come back? Can we come back? Can we come back? And she said, yeah, she said, yeah. So it's right before my 10th birthday and thereabouts. And we, my mom had made an appointment with the shop owners and they were a really great couple called Robert and Maxine Durgans. And they had traveled Europe, they traveled Egypt, they traveled Greece, they traveled Italy. They did the grand tour and they were a front business for a group called Artisans Guild International. Uh, Artisans Guild International during the, the 60s and 70s and 80s were in the traveling to common exhibitions were going around. Uh, Artisans Guild created all of these amazing knockoffs of Tutankhamun treasures that were made of um, a marble compound and gilded and they did, they had the most amazing line. In fact, behind me right there um, is one of the, to scale replicas from Artisans Guild International of Tutankhamun uh, standing on the back of a leopard. And, and that is one of the original Artisans Guild pieces. Okay. They're quite valuable. And so Maxine and Robert were just amazing. And they were part of the Theosophical Society. So awesome. Maxine starts talking to me about why are you you know, where, where, where did you get this from? Because she, she had been to Egypt. She'd studied Egyptology. She was in her late seventies when I met her. So she'd studied for a long time. She was very educated. She was part of the Theosophical Society for a very long time. So this is an educated woman. And I started talking to her uh, about things. Now I, I had been teaching myself hieroglyphs 
-hmm. So I, I actually knew the ancient Egyptian words for everything. And I knew Egyptian history uh, very, very well. I'd become very proficient. And I, you know, I was talking to her and she would be talking about things and I would correct her and say, well, actually, you know, I would start spewing dates off to her and things. And she said, where did you get, you know, who, where, why are you so interested? I've never met anyone your age who cared about this stuff. And I kind of was careful about what I said to her. And my parents, there was an, a shop, it was connected to another store. So my parents walked through into the other store and left me alone with Maxine and Robert. So when I saw that my parents were away and weren't able to hear, I said to Maxine, I pray to Egyptian deities. And so she started to talk to me about Helena Blavatsky and Isis Unveiled, uh, Blavatsky's, one of her greatest works, and started talking to me about the Theosophical Society and started talking to me about trans-channeling and she just started going into all these things and talking about past lives and all the, a lot of these concepts that I had, of course, not heard of. Mm -hmm. I didn't have access to that kind of literature in my house. Um, I had Egyptology books. I had all of the run of the mill normal at that time. Um, I had access to E.A. Wallace Budge, who of course now is a much outdated scholar, but he was very renowned for his time. He wrote, I mean, all of his books are still in print and, and yeah. he wrote, he, he's very famous Egyptologist, <clears throat> albeit now very outdated, but yeah. anyways, that's what I had access to then. So I had all of that, but I didn't have access to the type of material she was talking about, but I had my intuition and I had my beliefs and I had developed in private my own practice and meditation, which I called quiet time. And it was kind of known in my household. I would, I would tell my mom, I would tell my dad, I would tell my sister, my brother, I'm going to close my door. Don't bother me. I'm having quiet time. Now that was my sort of word for meditation. Right. I started, I started meditating when I was about seven years old. I started um, meditating and it was something that I, became more and more and more part of my life. So Maxine said to me, have you prayed to Isis? And I said, well, of course, of course I pray to Isis. She's one of my goddesses. She said, you need to meet somebody. You need to talk to somebody. So she went over to this bookshelf and she took down this postcard. Um, and it showed this lady in this Egyptian garb, standing in front of not an ancient temple, but a brand new looking with the columns and covered in hieroglyphs and with the cavito cornice and all of the traditional features of the Egyptian temple. She was standing in front of that holding a sistrum, the sacred rattle of the goddess Isis. And she said, I'm gonna tell you about my friend, Laura Vignet, so she, she starts talking to me about this lady in, in San Francisco who is in Sonoma County now, but who ran this place um, called Isis Oasis Sanctuary. And 
that she was a real priestess of Isis and that she founded a modern temple of the goddess Isis and that she really worshiped the Egyptian goddess Isis. And so she was telling me all about this lady and all about this place and I couldn't believe it. I just, I, I, I really almost cried. I felt, I, I didn't, I, I almost didn't believe that there were other people like me. And you know how, uh, how gay people, um, LGBTQ people often feel, um, well, I'm, I'm probably showing my age because when I, when I came, before I came out of the closet, it was at a time before the internet and you would feel I'm the only one who yeah. feels this way. Yeah. So that is how I felt up until that time. I felt I am the only one who's belie who believes these gods exist and who's worshiping these deities. I did not know anything about that there was a metaphysical community, that there was any kind of a movement towards worshiping Egyptian deities. Yeah. I, I had- Well, I mean, you were, ten, you were 10 at this time around, you said, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So, before my 10th birthday. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, I mean, you're, there's certain things we don't know yet when we're 10. Yeah. So, so she, she gave me. put you in touch with her? Mm hmm. Yeah, she gave me her phone number. She gave me her, her address and her contact information. And she wow. said, I'm going to call Laura and I'm going to tell her about you and tell her to expect your call. And I, I was, I was so ecstatic. I was so excited. I, I felt finally I was on the verge of something where people like Maxine had shown that she took me seriously. Um, she believed in reincarnation. She believed, in fact, it was Maxine actually who brought, who asked me, she said, do you, do you know about past lives? Do you know about, about this? And I said, well, that means you lived before, right? And she said, yeah, basically. And then she explained to me in theosophy what, what basically, what Blavatsky's basic teachings on, right. on rebirth were. And, 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 and that she'd gotten that from Tibet. And Maxine told me a little bit about that. And, and that really struck a chord in me. It really struck a deep chord in me because I had felt from the time of discovering that section in the World Book Encyclopedia that I had, that I had come from there. Right. That, that, that these gods, that this culture, that, that, that this was something I was part of. I never felt outside of it. I never felt as if anything was strange with this culture. I felt at home with this culture. I felt at home with everything that I read about Egyptian beliefs. It made sense to me and it made more sense to me than Christianity ever did. Yeah. So you obviously uh, like eventually called her. I did. And I did. So, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, we really don't have to discuss, well, actually, unless, so you called her, you, you, ha you had a conversation with her, obviously, yeah. but it, it, this is the woman that you said at, at, uh, at the beginning of the podcast, this was your lifelong teacher. 
Lori, Laura Vignier. Her her name when I met her was Laura Vignier. She was born Laura Lee. Vin, uh, Laura Lee was her her name, and she changed her name to Laura. And then later on, she changed her name to Lorion, which was sort of a compound of Laura and Aeon. Okay. Laura of the new Aeon. So um, parental consent and 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 all that is like meh, or well, actually, or so. Maxine told my my parents that she knew this interesting lady who led tours to Egypt, who was a teacher of ancient Egyptian history and somebody who had a a fabulous um, teaching center in Sonoma County, somebody that that I that I would find very interesting to learn from. And basically put it in those terms that this was an educational experience that could broaden my horizons and my studies of ancient Egypt. And Good ancient thing Egypt. this was pre-internet because otherwise they could just like type in Isis Oasis and be like, ah, uh, no. Yeah, this, the internet did not exist at this time. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Um, it was very much presented as here's somebody who could be a pen pal, who could be a mentor and teaching me ancient Egyptian history and, and Egyptology and archaeology and ancient languages, etc. Mm-hmm. So my parents were completely fine with me calling her because they felt this is just part of my ongoing obsession with Egyptology and with things ancient Egyptian and that this would be healthy and that it would be yeah. something that... Um, they felt this would be fine. Well, I mean, especially with your father as an anthropologist, he uh-huh. could be thinking like, well, Egyptology is a legitimate career. Exactly. So well, my father studied Egyptology. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I guess, you know, framed in that way, you know, it, it's easy enough for a parent to be like, well, if he's if he's interested in Egypt, you know, this could become, a, this could be, you know, as opposed to like just a childish, a childhood thing, right. something that he loves his old life. He becomes an Egyptologist. Great. Yeah, exactly. Because, call. yeah, because Laura actually, Laura and her partner, Paul, they actually did lead tours to Egypt. This is something mm-hmm. that they started doing. They would lead these tours. Now they were theosophical and metaphysical tours. Yeah. But they would lead tours to Egypt. So Laura and Paul, they they were they studied Egyptology, they studied anthropology, they studied archaeology. Laura was a very smart, smart lady. Yeah. And and so my parents figured this is great. He's gonna have an outlet to yeah. study Egyptology and to learn hieroglyphs, to continue learning hieroglyphs, because they knew that I was basically teaching myself hieroglyphs. And, yeah. and they thought this was a very good thing. They they absolutely did not associate it with anything metaphysical. Yeah. Now, how formal, you know, because again, you're 10 years old. How formal was the training at the beginning? Like the, the mystical aspect of the training, how formal was that uh, uh, initially? Was it just, you know, little bits and pieces in conversation until you got older or was it, was it really, was it formal from the beginning? No, from the beginning, I, I told her during the first conversation that we had because she saw the potential. She saw how serious I was. I said, I want you to be my teacher. I asked her, 
And she said that in her training and, and in her position as a reverend and in her background, she believed that when the student is prepared, the teacher will appear. And she told me that she would accept me as a novitiate um, and we would go from there. And I actually, I actually told her during our first conversation, I said, I want to be ordained. I want to be a priest of ISIS. I want to dedicate my life to my gods. And that's what I told her. And so what she said was she was going to be sending me pamphlets and lessons. She would send me volumes. She would send me either photocopied books or she would send me books in the post that she wanted me to read. She would send me lists of questions. She would send me meditation exercises. She would send me all different kinds of things. I would have to write essays. And the material actually began with theosophical teachings and Madame Blavatsky's teachings. But Lady Lorian, or then uh, Laura, uh, she had a vast occult knowledge and a vast um, library and areas of specialty and interest that she that she had. And we'll go into some of that because it absolutely has everything to do with her influences became my influences. But initially the material that I received was theosophical and there were other things too. Uh, because she was very interested in Rajneesh uh, Osho. She was very interested in um, Baba Ram Das, uh, Be Here Now fame. She was very interested in the, the, the gurus that had come from India, as well as um, Tibetan monks and teachers who had, who had come to the United States or Europe and who had published, who founded Dharma Center. She, she actually studied with a lot of those and she had a lot of different materials. So what she said was she wanted to first give me a very broad metaphysical education so that I could explore different avenues of thought and not just Egyptian mm. history, <clears throat> Egyptian religion, but really understand the metaphysical world and understand other cultures and understand where other teachers had made strides in understanding where consciousness came from and where the supernatural world and the spiritual world and the physical world meld. So from Laura, that was the education initially. From Paul Ramsey's, uh, so Laura's partner, they were never married, Laura's partner, Paul Ramsey's, who was a hypnotherapist, that was what he did in San Francisco uh, for a very long time. He became a past life regressionist, and this is something he did as a profession. And Paul was very, very interested in my story. He was very, very interested in me right away because of how young I was and because of how much I showed an advancement in things that, sure, he knew that I had been reading. He knew that I had had access to library books. He knew that I had, he knew where I came from. 
but he, he also grilled me and asked me a lot of questions on the telephone. We had amazing telephone sessions and he really grilled me about a lot of things and where the answers came from because he had studied Egyptology for a very long time. And Paul was also a very, very smart man. He knew, he knew fakers, he knew when to tell this is something that somebody has gotten from books and then this is something somebody's bringing through from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And he would really grill me. And he was very, very convinced that I had had past lives in ancient Egypt. And so Paul, mentored me in understanding rebirth, reincarnation. And there were a lot of things that he sent to me that were from Tibetan teachers because of the incredible technology that was developed in Tibet for understanding the human mind and also understanding consciousness and how consciousness is very fluid. So these were things I I started learning. And basically, my parents knew that I was having these great phone conversations. They knew that I was receiving materials. Um, But what was really great is that Laura and Paul always included photocopies from books or materials that were, at the time, mainstream Egyptology things. Right, right. So what I could show my parents was, oh, look at this. And it was a photocopy of a bunch of pages of things from, you know, Egyptology, mainstream Egyptology books, academic works. And so my parents very much thought that's what I was learning. How long before they either discovered or you told them that this was your, this was spiritual training not just academic Egyptology um so my parents were divorced when I was 15 or 16 maybe 17 um and I didn't come out of the closet about my religious beliefs until after my parents were divorced and my father was out of the house. So I kept everything that I was doing hidden from my parents. I had statues of Egyptian deities along with replicas of Tutankhamun's treasures. My my room was full of Egyptian reproductions and, and things. And I would do ceremonies. I, I would pray to my gods and I would make offerings. I would do that. But I was very careful not to leave remnants, not to leave anything that looked religious. I was very careful about making sure that that wasn't there. And so it wasn't until I was a teenager that I finally came out of the closet about, about what, what I, about what I believed. How was that conversation? Mm. Well, there was one hell of a row. Oh, I bet. Um, (laughs) I bet. 
my mom one Sunday it was time to go to church it was what we did and I walked into her room and I said I'm not going and I'm going to tell you why I'm not going and I sat her down and I told her everything um it didn't go over well at all she was she was devastated right. um, it's funny because basically what should have happened when I came out of the closet as a gay man is what happened when I actually came out of the closet <laughs> as in my religion uh, how could you do this to me right who took how it worse, your mother you... or your father I'm sorry who took it worse your mother or your father um my father never knew and and I can get oh. to that part of the story but my father actually I I never told my father um so I I never had the chance to because my relationship with my father never continued after I was a teenager I never saw him again so oh, um, okay so after the, my parents were divorced uh, my father had visitation rights for a very brief period of time and the visitations were stopped by the court because, and um, I, I want to say here because people have post-traumatic stress disorder triggers. And so I, I want to be really, really respectful of any boundaries that people have before I, I say anything else on this, because it does involve, um, it does involve incest and does involve child um, sexual violation. So, because it's something that I experienced. So I just, I just want to say if, if this subject is something that will be a trigger for somebody, um, you might just not want to listen to, to this part. Yeah. Just, I'm very sensitive about that. Um, so the court prevented my father from having visitation when in counseling, I finally came out to my counselor about the fact that my father had had been raping me since the time I was I was very young um and so instantly of course child protective services got was got involved and detectives got involved in in everything and they put they put a stop to any contact at all during during for the during this investigation so my father never my father never knew, never found out what my religious beliefs were because I, I, I stopped seeing him. I have not seen my father since 1989, wow. I believe. I, I believe that's the last time that I, I saw him. To my knowledge, he's still living. Um, I check obituaries every now and again to see that he, has he finally died. But um, I do not know if he's still living. <clears throat> okay. Wow. Um, geez. Okay. So I don't, I, I yeah. Uh, okay. How do we move on from that? Okay. But so um, I can actually going chronologically, um, I can go to the next thing, going back to my studies at Laura Vignet and Paul Ramsey's. So not too long after I became a novitiate 
in the temple of Isis, which at that time, Laura called it the Isis Society for Inspirational Studies, which still exists today. It's a nonprofit educational organization and that I'm still a part of. I've been a member since I was 10 years old um, and I'm still a member. So that not too, too far after I became a novitiate and started studying seriously with, with Laura and Paul, they told me that I really should write to Lady Olivia. Lady Olivia Robertson had founded with her brother and her brother's wife. They founded the Fellowship of Isis, which is an international organization. It's, to my knowledge, it's the largest organization of goddess worshipers in the entire world. And they wanted me to write to her, write an introductory letter to her and explain about my journey and about myself and about what I was studying with Laura and Paul. And so I did that. And Lady Olivia is just the most charming, charming person and teacher. She, she was wonderful to me. She, she, wrote, she, she is, I was a member of the Fellowship of Isis. And oh, really? uh, yeah, and uh, um, had communication with her. So yeah, I know. Yeah. Lovely lady. She's just the most amazing person. She's since passed on, but she yeah. she's she's still. I think she's still very present. Um, and the letters that she would write back and forth with me, she was so generous to me, and took so much time, especially um, because of my very young age, to really mentor me and. Something that really struck me with Lady Olivia, and I really haven't experienced this with any other, other teacher, this level, this level that she operated at. Um, and you know, because you, you know her, um, she's this force. Mm. And she just brings so much through her. Especially, did you ever meet her in person? No, God, I wish. I okay. um, I wanted to, you know, go to Ireland and and go to their castle and everything. I had joined the Fellowship of Isis because I've always uh, worked with Egyptian gods, but also um, uh, <laughs> they had their 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 druidic path. Yes, the true kind of demo. Yeah, and so I joined the Fellowship of Isis because uh, you know there was that double whammy for me. Yeah. I, so the the priestess in Toronto that was uh, my teacher, she was a member of the Order of Barzovitz Druids, which is the order that I really wanted to 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 join. Mm -hmm. um, but their training course, I mean, back then for me as a 20 year old, like to pay like 400 or 450 bucks for a training course. It's mm -hmm. like, uh, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I get you. So, yeah. So she was, uh, a member of an Obad Grove that, that met out outside of Toronto. So she took me to, um, to, uh, uh, a, a um, a Sabbath ceremony. Mm. met the other Grove members and 
uh, I started, you know, um, uh, practicing with them and I joined Obot and, and blah, 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 blah. So, um, looks like my, uh, my dogs want to go out. I'm going to pause for one moment. Okay. And then, uh, when I come back, we'll continue on with your story. Cause I hate talking. I don't hate talking about myself. I hate talking about myself on my podcast because we're not right. about me. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so you're in contact with lady Olivia it was this a like a, a turning point in your education was it becoming huge more, so this was like a more formal say training into the mm. priesthood at this point this was a massive life-changing event for me to be in contact with lady olivia because she's such a prolific teacher and this, this woman would write. I, I have everything she's ever written. <clears throat> she's absolutely incredible. The material that she, that she brings through and the level at which she operated. And you, I, I'm sorry you never had a chance to yeah. meet her personally. I, I've spent a lot of time personally with Lady Olivia. And I, I can tell you in all honesty that the, the only other person that I have ever in, in my life been in the presence of who has that level of spiritual resonance and wisdom is his holiness the dalai lama who's also one of my teachers and we'll get to him um but lady olivia really took me under her wing she really welcomed me in into the fellowship and um right away she was she was like you know we're going to bring you into the fold and we're going to help you know the goddess and, and fulfill your purpose and understand your psychic gifts and all of these things because that's how she was. So that began a, a very profound level of, of activity, of corresponding. And she would send me drawings and she would send me all kinds of, of little meditations and things that she that she, she kind of pulled out of the ether for me. And these are things I treasure to this day. She was instrumental in the values that I had, but, but the most important thing that she had when I, when I initiated correspondence with her was the fact that she was certain that the goddess Isis was an actual being and was an actual goddess, was not energy, not a thought form, not an right. archetype, none of those things. <clears throat> Lady Olivia had a very profound vision, a physical vision of, of the goddess Isis and it changed her entire life. And she wrote to me about that experience. I also heard her talk about it in person. And that experience convinced her that Isis actually is a, a real being and a tangible goddess. And this is something that I always believed. And this is how I, I my interactions with the deities are, are very 
they're less numinous and much more tangible, much more visible. The gods to me are actual beings. They are not energy forms. Right. Uh, that the gods have energy, that the gods control energy, that the gods uh, manifest energy. Yes, but the gods themselves are not energy. They are something completely other than that. And they, they actually do take physical forms. They, they absolutely have smells attached to them. These are things that Lady Olivia, in all of her writings and all of her books, come through these experiences that she's had with deities of all different pantheons. And that was very instrumental in my development because I really needed to have a teacher reaffirm for me or explain how the gods communicated, engaged with human beings, that it was possible. I needed to know that the experiences I was having up to that point were legitimate and authentic and, and I wanted to have them validated or to have somebody with much more obviously, much more wisdom and experience, somebody who actually had wisdom and experience to tell me what was going on, to tell me what my experiences were leading to right. and why me in the sense that I, for, for many years, I was, I felt very tortured by the drive that I had to worship Egyptian deities and to be a part of their culture, where that came from, which was so strong and powerful at all times for me. And Lady Olivia really put that in perspective. She really helped me to take it apart and understand that spiritually and to approach not only Isis, but to approach the other deities in a healthy relationship and really understanding that we could have personal engagement with the gods and that there was gnosis that arrived from that. Lady Olivia's entire library of writings of profound works, so much of that is is personal gnosis mm -hmm. and people can and do we can debate unverified personal gnosis we can look at personal gnosis we can look at verified personal gnosis we can try and take all these things apart but for me your conscience which tells you what's right and wrong which tells you reality um from falsehood guides you and will tell you very, very clearly, this is true, this is not true. And for me, Lady Olivia's writings and her personality and what she always brought through was very real and very profound and her gnosis is true. And everything that I I'm not a person that just accepts something because my teachers say it. Mm -hmm. I'm a rebellious person. I am a challenging person and I'm a questioning person. So it's not that I was just accepting everything Lady Olivia was presenting to me or that Laura and Paul were presenting to me as true. I certainly asked questions all the time and I certainly took it apart in my own mind. And 
started to apply the exercises and things to my own life, my own meditations. And it's through those years of experience that the things that I was taught were validated for me, not that verbatim everything that Lady Olivia said or that Lorian and Paul said to me verbatim were true for me in the same way that they were true for them. But I, I certainly believe that I was guided to find these teachers and to have them in my life. Definitely. Right. So when did you, what I'm really curious about is when you were initiated or ordained as a priest, mm -hmm. well, first of all, how old were you? Okay. So that's jumping leaps and bounds into time, but that's fine. I was ordained in October of 2002. And I know that seems like, wow, that's a long time. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So certainly we can go in chron more chronological order because there's a lot of other things in my story that come before I was ordained. Um, it does seem like an unusual thing that, that I was ordained at, at that very late stage in, in my life. Um, to Tracy Regula, who's now the archpriestess of the Temple of Isis, she wrote a very famous book, Llewellyn book called The Mysteries of Isis. She's also has been one of my teachers. I she think said, I have that book. I'm pretty sure I have that book. Yeah, The Mysteries of Isis by Luella, a uh, Llewellyn titled by De Tracy Regula, very, a very well-known book. Mm. And she, so De Tracy Regula is also one of my teachers. Um, she said to me, what the year I was ordained, she was laughing about it. And she said, it's so funny that, that you even have to go through this. She said, you came into this world ordained. She said, this is, this is just a formality because you are already a priest. And in fact, point of fact, I had already taken priestly vows um, from, from my deities in 1999. I had already self-dedicated as a priest. Um, so, so the confirmation, the actual ordination I received, which was also a legal ordination because Temple of Isis is, is a legally recognized church. That was the culmination of everything else. Right. I mean, I don't really see that as, you know, some crazy length of time. I mean, because, well, number one, you started very young. It's not mm -hmm. like we're going to ordain you at the age of 14. But also, to, I think in the uh, neo-pagan world, the whole year and a day for each degree, and you have three degrees, so you're, you know, the, the, the grand high priestess in, mm -hmm. in you know, three years. Um, yeah, I guess looking at it from that perspective, it's a long time. But I mean, it's, it wasn't really a long time. And- right. And even if it was a long time, so what? Like mm. that's that's not the end goal. It's not like you stop. Like, oh, I'm ordained. I'm done. It, this is a whole lifelong process. You Absolutely. know. Absolutely, and it has been for me. Uh, what I have been through and what I've gone through in order to arrive at where I'm at today, it, it certainly 
and I'm, I, I, I'm just getting started. And yeah. that's the funny thing. I, I, I really do tell people jokingly, but I, I really do mean it. Life begins at 40. Um, let me tell you all. Let me tell you all. It is so true, though. It is so, Isn't it? so true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you hit 40, let me tell you the changes that are going to happen to you. And you're going to look back on your younger self and you're going to say, if I could only go back. <laughs> yeah. And tell my younger self some things. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, your Was your ordination at... Isis Oasis was yes it was performed um, by both of my teachers performed it so Lady Lorian performed um both she and Lady Olivia performed the ordination in front of the entire community as it's done under a 500 year old Douglas fir tree in the middle of Isis Oasis and we can go more into Isis Oasis um in just in just a bit because that whole place is also <laughs> it's so wrapped up in my life my life is is Part of me is are is there and certainly will always be planted yeah, in that poverty. Yeah. I mean, what now? One thing I mean, you know, like when I uh, uh, interview, you know, um, Golden Donners, I know <laughs> what questions I can ask. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I when I uh, you know interview people from traditions that I'm not familiar with, I don't know what question you know like oath bound stuff and whatnot so i'm just going to ask questions and if you okay. can't just say like oh i can't answer that but Absolutely. your ordination ceremony is it um is it like a modern invention is it i don't know if there's any mm -hmm. um any sort of ordination ceremonies from ancient egypt that we have on record you know right. I, I know there's some um uh some people out there that are are comedic reconstructionists mm -hmm. and you know they they don't or at least well i don't know if they don't absolutely or really limit modern invention into their practice right so like you know can can you talk about that ordination ritual yep. like, absolutely uh, you absolutely. know absolutely that is published um oh okay okay um lady olivia okay so there are two ordinations. Um, and I actually underwent three different ordinations, which is a lot, but it's because I belong to three different lineages. So with Temple of Isis, which is the legal, the legal church that mm -hmm. Fellowship of Isis is affiliated with. The Temple of Isis, Lady Lorian had her own way of ordaining. She had her own ceremony of, of ordaining. And that is something that she brought through. And it's, it's an, an Isian ceremony. And it is not necessarily all of it based on substantiated by things in the historical record. Although Lady Lorian did use parts of what's called the negative confession or the declaration of innocence from the going forth by day or what's known as the book of the dead. Egyptologists have written and have debated whether or not priests in ancient Egypt as part of their ordination 
may have had to take the 42, what are called the 42 laws of Ma'at, Ma'at or the negative confession, the declaration of innocence. And these actually were vows that were, that were taken by, by the clergy. Um, comedic, reconstructionist, it, comedic reconstructionism is something that I am very, very familiar with because I used to be a comedic reconstructionist and um, main, the main comedic reconstructionist teachers, some of them have been my peers as well as my teachers. So uh, I, I'm very, very familiar with, with that. Comedic reconstructionists, the tendency there is to not really embrace things that are not substantiated by the historical record. Right. That doesn't mean that there isn't room for personal interpretation of the material. And then from there, filling in the blanks from the tradition. So going to other documents, going to other things in the historical record that are similar and incorporating those to create a ritual. Um, Richard J. Weedy, who wrote two very popular books, uh, Eternal Egypt and Everlasting Egypt. He passed away a few years ago. He founded the Temple of Amun-Ra San Francisco. And he's a beloved peer and a teacher of mine. And he was a comedic reconstructionist and believed very much that it was possible to adapt the historical record and adapt things so that you, as long as you were in the spirit of what was done, Lady Lorian, she never rejected any of the other things in her background, any of her theosophical training, any of those things. She didn't discount them or, or exclude them. Her entire exercise wasn't to say, let's copy everything the way that they did in ancient Egypt and recreate the Temple of Isis as it was done 3,000 years ago. Lorian and Paul were about taking the essence, taking the core values of ancient Egyptian sacred teachings and Egyptian religion, taking those values, taking those things and adapting them to the current situation. So their way of doing it was very fluid. Mm -hmm. um, so my ordination from Lady Lorian began with a meditation that I did in what was called the tomb room. Underneath the main temple at Isis Oasis, the big grand temple, there is a room that they call the tomb room. And it is a replica from Lorian and Paul's perspective. It's a replica of the tomb of the god Usir or Osiris at Abydos, which was the main cult center of the god Osiris. And so they recreated a replica of the tomb of Osiris and had a life-size sarcophagus that they built. And the night prior to your ordination, you spend, you spend part of the night inside the sarcophagus in a meditative state in order to receive your numinous blessing your spiritual blessing from the goddess isis and from the gods and basically it is a form of death that you undergo in order to receive then your ordination and so 
Lorian, that was Lorian's aspect and then the taking of parts of the, the 42 laws of Ma'at and, and agreeing to not a, not a dogma, Lorian called it Katma. <laughs> it was, these are ecological principles. These are principles in which what it is that you are being ordained to do is not to follow a doctrine, is not to follow a doctrine, is not to follow the straight and narrow path, but use the gifts that you have to go out into the world and to bring ISIS, to bring the intuitive, the compassionate, the merciful, to bring those aspects of what the Temple of ISIS represents and ecological awareness, all of these principles which are about acting the right way in society in order to create a positive impact. So it's, it's Lorian taught us not, it's not about staying cloistered in prayer and doing ritual. Those things are there, but about going out into the world and actually being the hands and feet of ISIS in the world. So whether your work is to volunteer at an animal shelter and to be an ecological warrior and to do activism, animal activism. This is something that a lot of the members of the church do or to be involved in human rights causes, which is something that, that, that I did through, um, through um, the International Campaign for Tibet. That was one of the things that I did. Uh, and it is about actually doing something in the world in which we can make a, a positive impact on the suffering of humanity that has been caused by, by governments and by the patriarchal system that our world has been possessed by. It's about actually making a solid visible difference in the lives of people and the lives of the ecology of the planet. These are the values that Lady Lorian believed in that she dedicated her life to. So when she ordained you, it wasn't just to stay in temple, in some building and do rituals all day. It was about taking the values of spiritual activism out into the world and touching the lives of people, touching the lives of animals and, and making a difference to other living beings. And so the ceremony though, then that Lady Olivia has, which came right after, that is published in um, the Isis Ordination Rite, which is one of the books that that Lady Olivia published. So the ceremony is published. It's public domain. It's not private or secret. Mm -hmm. um, the ordination ceremony concerns Lady Olivia stands up with you in front of all of your peers who need to acknowledge that you are worthy of being received into the community because the qualities that you have. Lady Olivia asks you which goddesses that you wish to be ordained as a priest of because there, it wasn't just a priest of Isis, that was obvious that we were being ordained as a priest of Isis or a priestess of Isis, but all, always 
you were other you were able to choose multiple mm-hmm. goddesses that you were dedicating your path to so isis obviously was for me primary goddess but i also chose the goddess sekhmet uh sekhmet who's the spouse of ptah because uh, in 1999, I self-dedicated as a priest of the god Ptah, who is my patron and my namesake, and who gave me my name. So Sekhmet has been a goddess who has always been with me and who's been a very, very fierce. Um, I, I'm alive because of Sekhmet. I, I, I really am alive because of her. She helped me and, survive. And anyone that follows you on social media, um, knows your relationship to Sekhmet just based on your posts and, and whatnot. So, yeah, so that, uh, that's, that relationship is, is obvious. And it's, it's obvious that it's, it's very important, Mm. uh, important to you. Sekhmet saved my life. Um, Sekhmet, who is a goddess of magic, Sekhmet, who is, all powerful and terrible and who helps you to cut through ego attachment, who helps you to see your life as a vehicle for liberation, not imprisonment to the world, but liberation. And this is something I learned from Sekhmet, but being a magician and being dedicated to the practice of Hekka. Um, Sekhmet is the goddess of magic. She is, is a, a a dynamic goddess who takes the magician in the palm of her hand and transforms them through experiences which can be quite terrible as initiations and then walking through that fire being reborn as a true magician and this is something that that happened to me in my life and was instrumental to my personality so naturally Sekhmet comes through a lot of the things that that I say on on social media that sometimes cause controversy and sometimes cause a stir which Sekhmet tends to do, mm. like certain of the Egyptian deities, like the god Set, who I also am consecrated to. And naturally he overturns the apple cart sometimes. So those things come through in my in my posts. Right, right. Um, but as far as the ordination, right, after one has confirmed, these are the goddesses that, that I am called to be ordained under, then Lady Livia invokes the the current of Isis, as she calls it. The current of Isis is the sum total of energy that every single priest and priestess of Isis that has ever been has had flowing through them. Mm -hmm. It's dynamic power that is passed down from priestess to priestess, from priestess to priest, from priest to priest, through the lineage that Lady Olivia claims, which is a noble lineage, and she traces her ancestry back to the royal family of Ireland and to ancient priests and priestesses. Um, in fact, she traces her lineage back to uh, Skoda, uh, who is uh, who she says was in it was a, a, a a, a member of the royal family uh, of Ireland, but that Skoda was originally 
um, had Egyptian royal blood and came to Ireland um, with Egyptian teachings and initiations. And these later on then became passed down through the Jordan Robertsons, who, who is Lady Olivia's family. Whether or not that can be substantiated, I don't know, but that is the lore that is yeah. what Lady Olivia, and I'm sure you've heard something similar because you. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, th um, th um, I, I don't want to call them stories. Um, every, you know, tradition, Golden yes. Dawn, Wicca, mm -hmm. whatever, all has that origin story mm -hmm. that may or may not be true. And as a really young pagan in my teens, first discovering paganism, they, they were true. You know, because, you, you know, you don't have that that discernment at that mm. time. And then you get older and it's like, well, that's not historically accurate. Um, and the next origin story, well, that's not historically accurate. And then you get older still and you're like, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't well, matter. It and doesn't, one can say that of the myths if, if, and the sacred if, stories of the gods. Right? We can say these aren't historically accurate. These aren't, exactly. but does that matter? Is it more important that in essence, that in that in listening to them and in meditating on them, that they transform our consciousness and that they place something in us that allows us to do our sacred work? Is that more important? Yes, I think that is. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the same way that, oh, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, like, that's why, you know, it, with these origin stories, the the historical accuracy, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Right. But there's uh, there's something behind the stories, right. uh, you know the 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 um, uh, Rosicrucians with with mm -hmm. and Rosenkreutz. Right. I know he never existed, mm -hmm. but I act like he does or did, and. Right. Whether I do or not doesn't affect any anyone else. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it, it's not it's not the historical accuracy because then if I'm like, well, if it's not historically accurate, it's invalid, then I have to discount all no. and all folklore. And that just doesn't make sense. Both those are both extremes. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to believe something in blind faith, to take something literal like sacred story cycles, to, to take these things and say, okay, this is 100% literally fact and true. Mm -hmm. That is as misguided as it is to then say, I'm going to throw all of this out. Exactly. And what exactly. I do in my work is I walk a middle path between extremes. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to discount and throw out an entire body of mystical teachings simply because physical activities that they're based on, these, these story cycles, are not historically true or, or didn't happen in the material world. Right. Um, in the Kemetic traditions, we, we have what we call nehe, which is, which is a cyclical divine time. It's sacred time. These stories, these sacred cycles that that the gods interact in that are happening again and again and again. Do they happen in the material world as historical fact in a linear sequence? No, they don't. 
But in sacred time, are these things happening again and again? Are the gods interacting in these ways? Yes, they are. And can we then, through our practices, can we access what's going on in sacred time? Yes, we can. And that is what magic is. Right. It is right. interrelationship between the material world and the world of the supernatural, the world of the gods. And, and so in point of fact, like you're saying, it, it doesn't really matter if these things happened or not in, in physical time. What matters is how do we as initiates, as magicians, how do we relate to them in our psyche and in, in our spiritual center? What goes on in there? How do we internalize these things and what can they do for us now? Um, so when I received the, the current of ISIS from Lady Livia, which is she puts her hand on your heart area and then she draws down this ISIS current in her hand and she directs it towards your, your forehead. And all I can, can say to relate my experience to you and to other people is I know when I go through an experience, regardless of what the person who is guiding me through that experience, regardless of what they say, either what they are doing creates an actual effect and interacts with me, or it is all nonsense and it does not. And I can tell you that that moment changed my entire life and that I have never, well, I've, I've only experienced that one other time. And that was when I was initiated by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. But Lady Olivia, what she brought through was an actual tangible electricity as if I was standing under something that makes the arm hairs an actual tangible electricity mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right and it absolutely went through me and i had a very deep emotional experience that shook me and shuddered me and and made me realize that I could not be the same person that I had been, that I, my life, I had to change my life. And that, that what was being opened, the path that was being opened for me to go forward was a path in which I had to change my behavior and my perceptions. And it shook me. It shook me so much that I, I was, I, I really was in, in, in tears and was shaking. And, and it was just, I, I, I don't know what I anticipated or what I expected. I thought that maybe I would go through the ceremony and I would feel special. I would feel part of the community, that I would feel um, confirmed in finally actually being recognized as a priest in the material outer world. I thought all those things, but you know what? None of those feelings, I didn't have any of those feelings. It was an, it was a totally different experience. Yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think you can, um, you can, 
I don't think you can really anticipate or, or grasp what it's going to be like. True initiation in, into when it's real. Yeah, yeah. That's why I say like true initiation. Um, it, it it's it, it's not something that you can anticipate. Uh, knowing what what it's going to happen when it comes, you can certainly describe it. Um, afterwards, you know, after you experience it, but prior to experiencing it for the first time, there's just no way you could even conceive. I don't care how many books or stories you hear of people's personal experiences with initiation. Uh, it's just not something that you can, you can know to expect um it's just it's one of those one of those um experiences that just transcends uh our our regular understanding of of the way the world works um absolutely it yeah. was it was just such an impactful experience because I actually felt I actually felt the current I actually experienced different flavors um, of consciousness that belonged to people that I didn't know but that were part of this current and every I, I can tell you that if you interview anyone else and you can interview every single person who has been ordained by lady olivia i'm promising you that you will not find a single person who says yeah i, I didn't feel anything she said right. the words yeah i'm telling you yeah i'm telling you that you that that that, that is true she yeah. that woman and i mean for two reasons i mean number one the icing current is a thing so yes it's accessible um, in those circumstances. Number two, I don't think the, the chances of her um, ordaining someone that wasn't ready for, for that, where they're, they're just not, you know, they're just not connecting um, is probably, was probably pretty low. So yeah. Yeah, it I was, was, it was, I, but before I was ordained, so when I, when I walked up there, when it was my turn finally, and I was, I was just so nervous. I mean, I, I really was, I was just, I, I, I was just shaking my stomach. I, I was so nervous. It, it was like everything that, that I had studied, everything <laughs> that I had been working towards, I, I felt all of a sudden, I, I felt I felt it kind of on me and my other teacher who was present, um, Lady Zarita, who I haven't really talked about, had a chance to talk about yet, but she said to me, she said, when you were ordained and the mantle is put on you, it is not a mantle of silk. It's not a mantle of fabric. It is a mantle of iron. And the responsibility that you carry as a priest is a life and death responsibility. And it's something that weighs heavy on you. It's not glamorous. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're sacred. It doesn't mean you're special. It doesn't mean you're chosen. It means you're having a burden put on your shoulders. And I felt that very physically uh, before I walked up there, but I walked up there and Lady Olivia 
her humor is so inappropriate at every moment. She's so funny. She, in the most serious of moments, Lady Olivia always makes a joke and she makes everybody laugh in a moment where it's like, okay, everything is serious and there's all this tension that you could cut with a knife. And then Lady Olivia slaps me on the head and she says, I know who you are. You're a priest that walked right out from ancient Egypt. And everybody laughed. <laughs> and, and I laughed and I, I thought it kind of made me feel better. It made me feel a little bit like, okay, I can go through the initiate, the ordination. And so then after she does the current, she anoints you and she anoints your breast and she anoints your throat and she anoints your head and your hands. And um, I, I've, I've read and I've heard stories of, of Queen Elizabeth when she was anointed and she was talking about what it meant to be anointed as a monarch and how that ceremony is the most holiest moment when the monarch is anointed. It's a deeply religious, it's a deeply Christian ceremony and there is so much sanctification and all these feelings. And when Lady Olivia anointed me, and I know everybody else who has gone through this feels the same way. Uh, she anoints you from this vessel that is the head of the goddess Isis with her wig and, and, and her horns. And on her head is the, the receptacle for the oil. And this is something that Lady Olivia has used for every single ordination since she started ordaining clergy. And so it, 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 it again, it was so profound to me. And I knew that, that I knew that it was a legitimate initiation. It was, a, it was a culmination of, of all my life up to that moment. Yeah. It was, it was so, so then after, so then after you're, you're, you're anointed, she gives you a, she gives you a crown and, and a scepter. She gives you a staff or, 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 or a scepter and, and a crown to hallow your head, as she says. And, and, and then when, after she declares you as, as a priest or priestess, she turns you around and you're, you're supposed to give your first benediction or your first blessing to the community. Uh, your first official act is, as a, as a clergy and it, it, it's really hard because I was in such a state of being so overwhelmed by the experience. Mm -hmm. I really could hardly even, um, it's hard to stop. Yeah. And she asks you, so tell, tell everyone what, what you will do when, what is it you're going to do as a, as a priest of, of ISIS? What is the work that you're going to go forth and, and do? So, um, I said whatever it was I said, because I, I really honestly just no words came out of my mouth and I don't remember what I said. Um, so that is the kind of abbreviated form, basically the format that it takes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth, like she took that, the um, anointing um, so seriously. I mean, and you know, she is religious anyways, but uh, during her coordination, like that canopy, that uh -huh. yeah. placed over her. Not uh -huh. a lot of people know this, like that's not actually part of the ordination uh, or um, the um, coronation. Uh, she added that because she wanted that done um, uh, away from everyone's eyes because it was yeah. such a holy 
uh, right. experience for her. Yeah. And it's and the it's, same thing, like yeah. whether, you know, you know, you're, you're being, you know, uh, coordinated as a monarch by God, you're being ordained. Like it, it's, it's the same thing, you yeah. know, and there's a sacredness and yes. a, a seriousness to it. And you're right about, you know, priesthood or adepthood. A lot of people think power, 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 prestige, da, 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 da. When you become be a, taken down. Yeah. When you become a priest, when you become an adept, you become a servant. <laughs> you know, and and because you're 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 now there to help people. And right. and that's your role and that's your responsibility in whatever capacity, teaching, training, um, good works, you know, volunteering stuff like however it is but you're a servant you're not the all-powerful you're not great and mighty and grand you know you become a a servant and um you you do everything from love and uh and it's your privilege to do absolutely yes it, it's um priesthood priestesshood the people who treat it as I am powerful, I'm special, and this makes me something. Those people are gonna be taken down. Mm. Um, the gods will topple those people. They'll, yeah. they'll be shown for who they are. And, and for me, exactly what you said. To me, being a, a priest is, I am a servant. Yeah. And firstly, firstly, I, I'm a servant of the gods. So every single day, my entire life revolves around my service. The first thing I do before I eat, before I drink, before I take care of myself, before I do anything else for my household is my knees hit the temple floor and I do my service to my gods. Offering and, and prayer and meditation, my spiritual disciplines come first and everything in my life revolves around that service. And, and my gods... Come that's, first. Actually, that's actually a great segue because that was the next thing that I wanted to talk about. I think a lot of your followers uh, on social media would be interested in your um, daily personal practice, especially like like the regular, like, you know, you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? Um, but, you know, stuff like that. But also, especially because you post a lot of photos of you in the desert. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, and you talk, you know, you don't just post these random pictures and, and leave it at that. I mean, you know, you're, you're communicating through, you know, the, the Twitter posts or whatever, but I, I think a lot of people would be curious what exactly, like, what's your daily practice like, but, and when you go to the desert, how often do you do that? Number one, but when you're, when you're doing these setups out in the desert, mm-hmm what are you doing exactly? What's the purpose, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a little bit about your daily practice would be nice to hear. Absolutely. So the first thing that I do when I, when I wake up is, is I have to, I have to make myself clean because in my household, which is a true polytheist household, like all good polytheists, we have altars, shrines all over the place. There are deities everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, you cannot escape the gods in my household. They are all over the place. 
and I'm, I'm a multi-trad household. So my husband who's initiated in umpteen traditions has his deities, his, his demons, his spirits, his practices, as well as I have mine. So there are gods and spirits and demons and all kinds. It's all over the place. Okay? Right. Yeah. So we have a temple room that is, is dedicated to the awakened cult images. These are the possessed images that the gods actually live in. So that room is completely separate and, and its own room separate from anything else in the household because of purity and keeping the awakened cult images for security reasons also. And I'm not talking about security because people stealing them, because when you have cult images that are awakened, it's, it's spiritually dangerous to have them, to possess them, because these are open channels to the supernatural realm, the realm of the gods. So they have to be kept in certain circumstances. Right. And then we have our shrine to the household gods in the front room, which does not have awakened cult images. They're blessed. The gods receive offerings through them, but the gods do not live in them. So those shrines are all over the place. We have the shrine to the household gods. But so the first thing that I do is, you know, I, I clean my body. I make myself fit for my gods. I have to brush my beard. I have to brush my hair. I have to wash, you know, my face. I have to make sure that I'm physically fit to see the gods. And then I go and I present myself to the gods, which always begins with prostrations. Um, I do not subscribe to the cur a lot of the current thinking, and I'm seeing this a lot on social media, it disturbs me. Um, I don't bow to gods. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not groveling before the gods. The gods, they're my friends. The, I can have an egalitarian relationship with the gods. I don't want to put other people's practices down. Right. But I'm not going to not stand and be honest about where I'm coming from and my philosophy because it's part of my, my practice. I'm not going to lie and I'm not going to disguise it. The gods, we are not equal to the gods mm -hmm. ever. The gods are gods. We were created by the gods. And so we have a relationship to them, but we are not their equals. And this narcissistic, and I think it's very malignantly narcissistic a perspective that a lot of modern practitioners have that they're on the same level as the gods, so they don't have to bow to deities, they don't have to show respect. Um, if we look at forms of polytheism that has survived in the modern world, first and foremost being Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism, look at the way in which they interact with their gods and engage with their gods in which their priests engage with their gods. And in my opinion, I think they show us the proper attitudes, the proper motivations and how we as polytheists, whether we're revival, revivalists, we are trying to cause these traditions to live again. Sanatana Dharma shows us how we can do it properly and the kind of attitudes that we should have because the gods do not need us. They need nothing from us. The gods could wipe us out tomorrow and be no worse off for it. But guess who needs the gods? We need the gods. We need what they have. You're coming before the gods and asking them for their magic, their power, their acknowledgement. In my opinion, you bow your body and you show respect and love and reverence towards your gods. Um, the people who have those attitudes, 
they don't bow to gods. They're not going to grovel to gods. Am I groveling to the gods? I don't think of myself as groveling to them. I think of myself as showing them the respect that they're due. Right. Do I fear the gods? Absolutely. Yeah. I have a healthy fear of my deities because groveling, I know, you know. Groveling isn't the best word. Humbling yourself. Before. Humbling. Being, yes. Being, yeah, that's, that's yeah. a better way it's, of describing you know what? It's the same thing with 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 teachers, um, which I mean, this is a segue, but I just want to say it's the same thing with my teachers. I, I, I greatly respect and revere my teachers. Um, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama is my root guru. I take an initiation from him. And when you come into the presence of the Dalai Lama, um, you show proper respect and you bow. And for me, not having egoistic attachment. I am something, I am this, I don't. That coming from that kind of place, you will never achieve liberation. You will never achieve your spiritual goals through acting egoistically. It's not going to manifest good things. When you can recognize greatness, recognize other beings who have evolved ahead of you, you can humble yourself, you can bow, you can acknowledge the greatness of other beings, then you're worthy of being acknowledged. Then you are, you have at least evolved beyond a base ego attachment and, and, and perhaps you're gaining some wisdom. Yeah. But also, yeah. you know what? For me personally, I have no problem acknowledging authority who has earned that. And, and by virtue of them just being in the room, I can tell that they are coming from a place that deserves my humility and my humbleness. Yeah. I mean, it's, let's be honest, it's not a humble generation to begin with. Uh, so no. It's, it's, it's no surprise. Entitled. Yeah. Uh, so it's no surprise. But secondly, too, I also question... Um, and this, you know, we'll we'll end this discussion here because I don't want to talk about them anyways. But um, I, I I also question the how dedicated they are to their practice. You know what I mean? Like I I don't think we're we're talking about you know like devote devoted daily practitioners of whatever craft. Tradition, whatever um, system that that they're they're working with. So I mean, you know, that's that's that you know, social media vomit, hot take, crap that you just scroll past and you know ignore because it has absolutely zero value. So in my opinion, you know, something I I recognize in my practice how far I have to go before I can consider myself awake and aware. It's a struggle in my practice. And I am very humbled by my gods and my spirits. I'm very humbled that deities like Ptah, who is a very noble deity and, and who is the master of all crafts, I am humbled that he allows me to continue to do my work, even in light of the fact that honestly, I have a lot of faults. I have a lot of flaws and I I really have a lot of areas I need to work on. And that makes me feel so humble 
and and feels so grateful that I am allowed every day to, to go into temple and to serve and to be embraced and to be allowed to do the work that I do. Yeah. I, I've been given a very privileged, privileged life. I have a very privileged life and I know that I have a lot of privilege. So to be humble yeah. in, in, in light of my privilege, absolutely. I, I have to be. Yeah. Um, and if, if you, if they only knew the power behind recognizing your flaws, uh, you, you know, when you, cause it's hard to do, it's hard to do, but we ha all have flaws, but the thing is, and this, you, you, you know, when you're younger, you wouldn't think of it this way, but there's, you there's true power when you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, okay, this X sucks about me, <laughs> uh, you know, here are my flaws. There's power behind that because you're acknowledging it and you get to reshape your entire being and in extension, your entire life mm -hmm. and in extension, your entire universe. Mm -hmm. So the, the power behind humility, the power behind acknowledging your flaws, that's power. Like, I, I mean, you can think of, of power uh, as solely being well i'm gonna cast spells on people blah 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 and that's power and that's okay fine but the power behind humility is like like nothing nothing else that you experience you know that just i i'm sorry i have to go into a segue because you just really said something really powerful and really important and it just really rang with me so is it okay if i just share another anecdote another experience? yeah yeah so everything you said relates to the experience that i had um the first time that i i went to see his holiness the dalai lama and this was in let me check my notes because i want to make sure so october 12th through 14th 1999 and I, so I was invited by the office of His Holiness the Dalai Lama to to um, to come to these teachings and and to to come and uh, receive these teachings from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And on one of the evenings after the day's teachings, His Holiness gave a public forum to discuss moving towards internal disarmament. Um, how can we achieve? liberation from anger and from conflicting emotions and things and so i went to this forum and it was hilarious it was hosted by goldie Hahn, uh. <laughs> and she was let me tell you she was fabulous yeah oh i she bet was, i love she goldie was so Hahn. much more than what you see on tv i just i i mean she was amazing and she looked absolutely gorgeous i loved her mm. so anyways the Dalai Lama um, comes out and he said that he wanted to talk to us about a personal, his personal experience. And I've already had read, you know, read and studied everything. And so I, I, you know, I, I, I thought, okay, you know, I, this is going to be interesting, but 
His Holiness starts talking about the Chinese occupation, which start in 1949, the communist China's China, the communist army invaded Tibet. And in 1959, His Holiness, of course, had to flee Tibet for India, which where he has remained. But His Holiness talked about the experience of Tibetans at that time in Tibet, what had happened to them. And he talked about meeting refugees when they came and the stories that, that they told. And the Dalai Lama went into excruciating detail about, about these atrocities. And it was really um, a gut-wrenching experience because here it was, we all had thought, we're gonna have these happy, beautiful teachings and everything. And the Dalai Lama starts it off by going into this very, very dark material. And it was very shocking. And, and so during this, he just related all of this material. And he started to cry. And everybody, you could have heard a freaking pin drop in that auditorium. Um, and the Dalai Lama, he cried for a few minutes and then he wiped his eyes. He put his glasses back on and he said, people ask me if I'm angry at the Chinese, if I hate the Chinese after everything they've done to my country. And I can sit here and honestly look you in the eye and say to you that I love the Chinese that I have no anger towards them for what they did. And that I am humble. I am humble. I'm humbled in the presence of these experiences and, and I, I, I have nothing but love in me for my Chinese yeah. brothers and sisters. And never in my life have I felt so ashamed of my own anger that I've carried and my narcissism and, and my failures um, at holding grudges against people who slighted me in small ways and still being angry. And at this time, I was in a very abusive relationship. I was, I was um, in a violent relationship and I was carrying so much hatred and anger. And being there with the Dalai Lama and it was like, there was a moment when he looked right at me and I really just felt so ashamed of the anger I was carrying and of being so, carrying grudges against other people because how could I justify my anger and my, my prejudice against other people and my discrimination and my, some of my very bad behaviors? How could I justify that with someone who had seen his family members raped and butchered and set on fire and machine gunned and who could sit there and, say that he felt love and compassion. And I knew that it was not bullshit. I knew that it was real. And, and, and that is one of the reasons why I took initiation from the Dalai Lama, why I follow his teachings and why I believe in him. Because 
when you sit in front of someone like that and they look you in the eyes and they tell you all these terrible things and you feel nothing but love and, and, and compassion radiating from them, it changes your life and you either are gonna keep being the same person that you were, or you're going to take a look, hard look at your life and you're going to change things. And, and, that, and that's what I decided to do. And so when you, when you were talking about humility, that someone like the Dalai Lama, who is um, idolized by millions of people who in his own country, I mean, he is believed to be the, the manifestation, the incarnation of Avalokiteshvara Shenrezig, who is the patron deity of Tibet. So he is a deity incarnate. And yet someone like that sits in front of you and cries and relates these terrible experiences in them. He's so humble. Yeah. yeah. And it really made me look at how, do, how am I living my life and how am I handling my anger? How am I utilizing my gifts and maybe i need to stop and, and think about my ego and my narcissism and and my my anger and my baggage that i'm carrying a lot of baggage i mean you know louis vuitton has nothing on me yeah yeah so. yeah but i mean you know it's you know when you encounter anger and hate and and you don't like it um what's the answer anger and hate like anger and hate doesn't solve anger and hate <laughs> love does and i could see and i you know and i'm not you know sitting here like I, I i don't experience anger and hate because i'm human it's what do i do with those feelings come up how do i deal with them how do i channel them but you know, in the Dalai Lama's case, it's, you could, like, these people that massacred his family and, you know, invaded his country, they're damaged, hurt people. Mm. If you're not damaged and hurt, you don't cause that kind of damage right. and hurt. So... I would feel my go-to is to feel sympathy and love for passion. Yeah. For people, and, 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 and for that's, people that are damaged and hurt. Right, and when yeah. people try to come at me with, with, you know, that kind of negativity, um, especially people that don't know me, like, mm. you know, I, I only feel compassion. I don't feel hate. I, I can't even name one person that I, I, I consider that I hate, yeah. but I feel compassion for, for people because how damaged, how hurt do you have to be to come after me with hate? Mm -hmm. um, especially, you know, you know, like all online bullshit, online drama, how damaged are you that, my innocent little tweet that means nothing is enough for you to write some bullshit, hateful comment. You don't know me. You've never met me. You never will meet me. But you 
have enough hate and think it's worth your time to respond in that kind of way, you're clearly damaged. And I feel compassion for you. And I hope that you find what you need in life to be able to beyond existing in those kind of those kinds of feelings um and and being able to exist more in a place of of love um so yeah it, it's not surprising to hear the dalai lama um speak that way as opposed to you know the roman catholic priest that mm was just on our Canadian news saying <sighs> in his sermon that he wants to take a shotgun to all the people, i.e. Indigenous people that are vandalizing churches. You know what I mean? Like there's, those are two very different go-to emotions, go-to reactions. One is gonna solve problems, one is going to not even create problems, but exacerbate existing problems. And what's going on here right now in Canada with the thousands of, of murdered Indigenous babies being found in unmarked graves right now, um, you're not, he's not creating a problem, he's exacerbating a problem. So yeah, I expect that of the Dalai Lama. Um, but I also expect of, of, you know, um, spiritual leaders, uh, um, fallibility, not infallibility. It, it would be okay if he said, yes, I hated them. Mm. But then what I did was I transformed that into love. Mm. You know, it's okay. It's okay to feel hate. It's okay to feel anger don't stew in it, you know, like, what do you do with it? You know, do you stew in it? Do you send it out? Or do you transform it into love? You, you have know? to use it as a basis for helping other people. Absolutely. Um, and we all have trauma. We've all, I, I, I don't think there's anyone who hasn't had something in their life that's mm -hmm. traumatic, something that they carry with them. And, and this, this was, this really was why Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Lux Files. I'm not just the host of this podcast. I'm also the owner of Lelo Gonzalez. I make beeswax and scented spell candles, loose stick and liquid incense, anointing rolls and bath salts. So once you're done listening to this episode, why don't you head on over to my website at www.lelokanzawin.com and check out my products. For your convenience, the link to the website is also in the show notes. Initially, um, I started to read the Dalai Lama's books and I started to, to gravitate towards trying to understand his philosophy because of what had happened to me as a child um, with my father and, and the, the volatile environment in which I grew up because it was, it, it was quite, it was quite volatile. It was quite violent. And, um, and I, I really am very happy and lucky to, to have made it out alive mm -hmm. um, because the statistics are not good for yeah. 
people who've gone through what I go through. And usually, um, especially with, with young men who have been sexually victimized, um, drug use, suicide, um, you know, it, it doesn't look good. Yeah. Uh, so I, I am very, very fortunate that, that I have come through that. But how I got through it was to say, I can either die with this, I can keep carrying this and be angry and have hatred and, and be a victim of this, or I can be liberated. I can, I can forgive it, which doesn't mean excuse it, mm-hmm. but I, I can, I can transform my experience into something that empowers me to help other people. So in the work that I do and in my life, I, I try to help other survivors of incest and survivors of sex crimes. I try to, to help them by being an example and having a dialogue and opening up a listening ear for them and showing them that there is a way to build your life from that. You can go from that kind of victimization as hard as it, it's, it is to do it. You can change those experiences into something very powerful and, and, and about love and about, about constructing something that is, is, is dynamic and helps other people and is fulfilling. You can have that kind of life. And I, I do consider myself as an example of that very much because um, you know, I, I was diagnosed as having severe depression when I was, uh, before I was 12 years old. Um, and go figure, of course, at the time, right. they were wondering and questioning, how can someone so young already show these signs of depression? Of course, what they didn't know was that my father was raping me. And so, you know, uh, I carried that for so long and really through my metaphysical training and the teachers that came into my life and saw something of value in me was I able to little by little took a long time to transform that anger and transform all of that into something of compassion and love and certainly the Dalai Lama and and his teachings and and Tibetan Buddhism and my training in that has helped me to reach that place where I can, tr- I've transformed all of that into something that is about love and compassion. Um, and so humility is part of that. Going back to a conversation, humility is part of that. And there is nothing demure, there is nothing uh, groveling about humility. True humility is, is a recognition of the highest qualities. And this is, this is something that you learn the hard way, but this is something that you have to learn through spiritual discipline. Um, so my practice of doing my prostrations in front of the deities uh, and then striking the sacred fire in front of Pata, striking the sacred fire in front of the, the other deities the offering of incense, and then the daily ritual, which in which is composed of hymns and chants to the deities, and offerings are given. So all the food offerings are prepared and then delivered to the deities, 
and the deities are fed for the day. And then uh, I do my meditation. And I usually meditate between two to two and a half hours on a daily basis. And then it depends. I have other times where I do more extended meditations where I'll meditate for three hours or four hours. But um, generally daily, my meditations are, are an hour and a half to two hours long. Um, sometimes total in a day, I could meditate if you put those sessions together for three hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my meditation practice um, is, is certainly very much part of my magic practice and is very much part of my practice as an iconographer. So that is my morning practice. And then when I go into my studio, I have a shrine to Jehudi or Thoth, who's the god of wisdom and the god of writing. And all scribes or people who do any kind of scribal work or in iconography as is, is a form of scribal work, I consider what I do that. So I light the, the candle for him. I get him an offering of beer. I uh, charge the incense and I say my prayers and make sure that the studio is, 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 uh, is uh, imbued with that intention of whatever my day's work is. Um, and then I go to the Shrine of the Household Gods <laughs> in the main room and I do my prostrations and I light the sacred fire and the incense and I get change the food offerings, give the deities their food, make sure they have all their things that they like. And then I'm allowed to do my own, eat my breakfast, have my coffee. Um, I always will read from a sacred text or read from a either a book that is for my magical practice or a book of meditations, a book of prayers, always read that when I'm eating. And that's usually then when I will do my social media, I will post my pictures for the day. I'll post, you know, my, my, whatever I'm inspired to, I will, <coughs> excuse me, I'll post that. And then when I'm done with my breakfast, I will go into the studio and, uh, and get to work for the day on my commissions. Um, when you, you asked me about the desert and all the pictures that I, yeah. that I yeah. desert. so we go out as frequently as we can. Um, where those pictures are taken is on the Bonneville Salt Flats, which is in the Northwestern Utah desert, which is about five minutes drive from my house, about five minutes away. And so really, I, I really literally live in the middle of the desert. I mean, our town, you can drive through our town in just a few minutes from right. the entrance to town to the end of it. Um, it's not fancy to call it. It's called the city of West Wendover. And I kind of wonder, where do you get city from? I mean, right. it's an outpost. Yeah. It's an outpost, people. Yeah. Um, and right now we're in the middle of the dust bowl. Um, yeah. From the fires but those that place out there the bonneville salt flats is the remnants of a prehistoric lake which actually the great salt lake uh near salt lake city is the last portion 
of a huge prehistoric lake that covered um, this entire region and went all the way to Salt Lake City. And Salt Lake, the Great Salt Lake is the tail end of it. So the salt flats are the bed of that lake and they are covered in sacred salts that leach out um, during the monsoon season, which we usually have uh, right at the beginning of summer, it rains and rains and rains and it fills that up. And so in a way, the, the lake is brought back here. Lake Bonneville is brought back. We have this lake. And then when the lake kind of recedes, all these huge salt chunks and salt crystals, you know, they leach out. And that process actually, the salt we have here is very similar to uh, the sacred salt that they used in ancient Egypt that's sacred in our religion, which is um, known as natron salt. And it's basically sodium bicarbonate or baking soda and, and table salt. Um, and our composition of salt out here isn't exactly the same chemical composition, but it's very similar. So we actually do use the salt here in our ceremonies and um, we use it for purification. We use it uh, um, in protection rituals. We use it in all kinds of rituals. So um, we have established a number of sacred sites of pilgrimage where our deities have made themselves known that this is a place where they would like us to to establish as as a place to come and do rituals. So after receiving their permission, and then of course that we have land spirits here, and after we receive their permission to do that, we started to make these regular pilgrimages out there with the icons that um, my work in progress, a very important part of the process for my clients is making these journeys where I take the icons in progress out to the salt flats and perform ceremonies and offerings. And this is part of what we call zehatit, um, which means to pacify the deity. And it is feeding the deity uh, through these ceremonies. And by doing it on top of these sacred salts, where the desert, we're in the middle of the desert. And comedically speaking, the desert is a very holy place. It's, it's a place of holy terror. It's a place of the spirits of the dead. It's a place where the gods in some of their more terrible forms manifest. It's very highly charged. And then to be on top of a bed of holy salt, well, comedically speaking, you cannot get more sacred than that. Right. So taking the icons there is, is a form of transmitting the magic, the vital power of of the land and the gods who work through this land, transferring those to these icons in progress, allowing them to have that power. And the more that one does this with these images, the more they are imbued little by little with the sacred power and they become vehicles for, for the gods. So the pictures that I post are from different ceremonies that we do. The ones I've been posting lately are from my last commission that I just finished, which is the Akem Shield of Kanum Patatatenen and the Egg Creation. And those pictures with the framed icon, the ones that you've been seeing lately and all the offerings, <clears throat> that was from the offering ritual we performed for Kanum um, on the day that that icon the, the ceremony known as the, the mouth opening ceremony or opening the mouth was performed on that image. The God possesses the image and starts living in the image. 
And then we take the image out to the salt flats and we perform the great offering ritual where the, the God who is in his new body is fed. So all the alcohol, all of the bread, all of the offerings, all these offerings are, are done on behalf of my client um, to feed the deity, to welcome him to his new body. Um, and then once the deity is received at his temple location, uh, then my client will do the appropriate sacrifices and ceremonies in order to welcome the God there. So that's... Okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, I'm gonna pause. Okay. And uh, when we come back, I, I wanna talk, before we wrap up, I wanna talk about your iconography a bit okay. more, because I'm curious about your process and, and materials and stuff like that. Okay. So uh, let me just hit pause here. Speaking of being a servant, I'm a dog owner. So, you know, when dog gives you that yeah. look, you better hop too. Yes, I do understand yeah. that. Good thing, <gasps> good thing I love them. So do you need me to I move the lamp closer? I, I, it's getting darker here. Do you need me to move a light source? I should have no, asked you that. That's up to you. Okay, I'm, okay. as long as you can see me and you think the quality oh, is good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Okay, that's fine. Good. Uh, so your icons, I, I want to talk about because they're amazing. And, mm. you know, like you, you you post pictures of them complete, but you also post pictures like mm -hmm. as works in progress mm -hmm. and looking at them, like I couldn't even begin to, well, of course, I'm also not like an artist too. So I don't know <laughs> about all different types of, you know, art materials, but looking at them, especially when they're a work in progress, like I can't even conceive of like, what are they even made of? You know what I mean? So let's talk a little, let's talk about your process with making the icons. Um, uh, Cause they're just, they're fantastic. They're amazing. Thank you. Um, okay. So there, there are two processes at work. One is what we can call the magical metaphysical process and mm -hmm. there is the material artistic process so the most important thing to me is that and, and what i hope people can take away and, and understand um is the nature of what a cult image is when when i talk about my work because there are people most people who think of my work as inspirational art right we think right. of it as spiritual art good things absolutely and and i and i'm not insulted by that at all but that's because people don't have a, a background in understanding images as living gods and images as being objects that are possessed by the gods um now this is something that in hinduism with murtis or their god images it's part of their culture and they totally understand exactly what what's going on here yeah um the work that i do is not art in the conventional sense uh from the comedic point of view there there is no such thing as art they did not have a word that corresponds to art nor did they the egyptians have a concept of art as we know it mm -hmm. art as <laughs> being the expression of an individual artist of their experience and their society's view of what's going on and how that impacts the artist and all these ideas that we have as, as, as artists today about art, none of those things existed in ancient Egypt. 
Yeah. Images to them were a manifestation of the divine. And images weren't just symbols of the things that they represented. They actually were those things. And that's very hard. It's, it's, it's very hard for um, people today in the West to really understand that. Uh, who I find understands that is people who come from African traditional religions or African diasporatic traditions. And those are people that I work for and I work with. I'm One of my main clients right now is a very well-known teacher in those traditions and, it, and is commissioning me to create these cult images. Um, so what I do is I am creating physical bodies that the gods in their forms that we know of as the divine Ba. Um, the divine Ba is the manifestation of the gods, uh, of, the, of the divine that is present throughout all of creation. Mm -hmm. Um, the gods will select to engage with the material world through an image that they then, as in, in a manifestation of the divine Ba, they will settle in these images and they will remain in that image. And in doing so, they are able to then have a relationship with the material world and have a relationship with a human community. And through that relationship, the work of co-creation can, can happen because from a comedic point of view, the world is still being created. Creation is still expanding. It never stopped. And it's an ongoing dynamic sacred process. So human beings and the gods, they, they, are both engaged in the work of maintaining creation and expanding creation. And human beings can directly participate in this in a number of ways, but one of those ways is for the deity um, or the nature to manifest itself and attach itself to a sacred image. And these then are installed in temples and they become the life of the temple in the temple being a place in which the work of maintaining creation is done through ritual through magical processes and it becomes the life of the community mm -hmm. that's just very succinct believe me it's much more complex than that but i'm trying to be um general for an audience right yeah. um so what you want to do as an iconographer, what the entire experiment really is, is that you want to create images of a specific deity according to a specific template that will be so attractive to the deity that the deity will decide, I'm going to come and stay in this image. And then once the deity is present in the image, it's through that relationship that you have with the deity acting in that image that the temple community the temple can exist as a battery for sacred creation sacred activity but you have to make the deity stay in the image or that that kind of sounds like you're making the deity do something it's you want to encourage the deity to want to stay in the image right so it is through ritual it's through the daily rituals, it's through all of these, these interactions that the deity is maintained in the image. 
but the image has to be acceptable to the deity. The image has to be recognizable to the deity. And gods and goddesses, each one of them is different and they each have their own uh, likes and dislikes. There, there are things the gods do not like, there are things they do like, and that impacts material. So all of my materials are governed by what a specific deity does or doesn't like. The form that the icon takes has nothing to do with what the client or patron thinks the deity looks like because the client or patron isn't going to have to live inside the image. The deity is going to live inside the image. So my clients hire me as a ritual specialist in order to accomplish all of the work that needs to be done to create an image that is a living cult image that then they can install in a temple and it can be a living image and it can be the life of the community. Um, my clients know better than to try and tell me I want it to look like this. I want it to look like that because I will listen to whatever my clients say, but what the deity wants and what the client wants, um, I'm gonna do what the deity wants, not what the client wants. Um, and this is established through divination. I have my own divination system um, that that uh, was, was created and crafted in Zimbabwe after my specific instructions. And it's, it's, a, it's a system of divination unique to, to me and to the lineage that I'm creating. And it allows me to detect what do the gods want and what kind of image is, is acceptable to this deity and what kind of materials does the deity want the image to be made out of. So once I have those things established, uh, then there's a huge ceremony. There's a number of ceremonies that have to take place in order to start uh, sanctifying the image, in order to kind of uh, um, begin the process of, of letting the God know, well, this is where you're gonna be living um, and to ask for the deity's participation. Without the deity's direct participation, the image cannot be made. Um, because otherwise you're gonna have a pretty image that glitters and looks all nice, but there'll be no deity living inside of it. Mm -hmm. And so the point is that the god or goddess will possess the image and actually live inside of it. Um, so the image actually becomes the deity. So when you are worshiping the image, yes, you are worshiping the deity. The image is the physical manifestation the visible aspect, what we call the ka, is the visible aspect of the deity. And there is no difference between the deity living inside the image and the image itself, as long as the deity remains inside the image. If the deity should ever abandon the image, then what you have is a pretty thing that looks nice and has no spiritual value or merit to it at all. Mm -hmm. So this is why, and the reason I'm trying to say all this is because I think most of the time I run into that people really don't understand what it is that I do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not an artist. I'm an iconographer. Right. I make cult images. Um, art is something for humans and cult images are something for deities. They're also for ancestors. They're also for, and in, in African traditional religions, everything I'm talking about, this is, this is, how they, they are raised, the, the images they have of their ancestors, the images they have of their spirits, they're living beings, they're living images. And, and all of the ceremonies that are performed for these images 
are, are directly engaging the beings that are living in these images. So, yeah. um, so that's what my clients pay me to do. Um, and I get a lot what are, what are some examples of materials that you use to create these, these, um, so, icons? Yeah. so I use, um, they're, they're two and three dimensional cult images. And right now, all of the images I'm doing are two dimensional. Um, I use museum conservation wood panels, which have a, a, a very light coating of clay on them. Uh, and then the image of the daddy let me let me ask you a question uh, uh -huh. there what what makes museum conservation wood museum conservation just out of curiosity because i've never heard of that before right so if i take and this is done in the renaissance this is done a lot of places where they used wood panels they would find nice poplar wood plank create a panel uh leonardo da vinci did this and it's a great, flat, beautiful surface. They would prime it with gesso, and it would be a great surface for creating. Now, changes in humidity, changes in heat mm -hmm. affect wood. Wood warps. So if you paint an image on top of wood panel, what is going to wind up happening over time is that the wood is going to shrink and expand and change. Right. And the image is going to wind up cracking. And this is creating the conservation disasters of today. Yeah. So in my work, I only use museum conservation materials. These are materials that have been engineered to be stable despite changes in temperature, humidity, et cetera. So, Museum conservation wood panels that I use have been treated so that they will never warp. Uh, they will never change. They'll never split. They'll ne they don't have knots in them. Right. Um, they're treated so that these will last for hundreds of years. I mean, they, they really could last generations and generations and generations. Okay. So uh, they're also. And you said you put uh, um, a layer of clay on uh, A very fine layer of clay which is which is absorbent which is which has been very finely sanded it's it's very very thin and that is because the pigments that i use are water based which is exactly what the ancient egyptians used okay. uh, for their pigments so i use pigments that are uh semi precious and precious minerals they are lapis lazuli jadeite turquoise um hematite they're not uh, yellow ochre, red ochres, these are natural pigments, um, and lapis lazuli, amethyst, all of these pigments that I use, and they're water-based, they're used with water, and the binder is a gum Arabic, and... I mean, you're so, not going, like, let's make this clear, you're not going to the art store and picking up, you know, a buck 99 paint, you know? Like, uh, no, yeah. so, no, the pigments that I use are, are, are hugely expensive, yeah. Um, they're semi-precious. They're made out of gemstones that are pulverized and they're suspended in gum Arabic. These are, I use the most expensive pigments on the planet. Right. Um, everything that I use is of the highest quality that is available. Um, I also use gold and platinum, copper, sir, silver, depending on the deity, depending on their requirements. 
Um, I also use semi-precious and, and precious stones in the form of cabochons or faceted gemstones. So uh, usually I will start buying gemstones even years in advance. Um, the gemstones, for example, in my Zobek icon that I did, he has a, a, a very precious Indian emerald, a pyramid um, in, um, set in him that's made of Indian emerald, which itself was a fortune. Yeah. Um, I bought that. I bought that over 10 years ago. Uh, I, I will, because of the expense of the gemstones, I'm always buying stones and, and hoarding them for future icons just because it will make the process more feasible. Right. The right. cost to me of each of my icons, just not paying me for my time, but the cost to me of creating my icons as I'm doing right now. Just my out-of-pocket cost with everything is over $5,000, $6,000. Oh my God. Um, I had no idea. Wow. Um, my work is very, very expensive to create. Mm. And that's not even calculating the time yeah. involved. My icons take anywhere from nine months to one year to create generally 14 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week. I'll work and so you're talking about thousands and thousands of thousands of hours, minimum of a thousand hours. Mm -hmm. um, this is something my clients are paying me for. I am paid for everything I do. I'm paid for my consultations. I'm paid for every hour that I work. Um, and actually this press, this is, this has a precedent in ancient Egypt. People think that the tombs uh, the, the, the tombs, for example, the kings that these things were created by artists just doing this out of the goodness of their heart. Um, the artists <laughs> who created the tombs of the kings were paid to do that work. Of course they were. Um, yes. Um, I am paid to do my work and people who want my work, they pay me for my time. I'm paid by the hour and they are paid. They're paying me not only for my materials, but they're paying me for my expertise, mm -hmm. um, which I rightfully earn and deserve. And so I, I am not a, a, a one of these artists who says I'll work for free and um, that I have a problem with charging. Absolutely not. I earn everything and I deserve to make a living for of my course. work. And I do. This is what I do full time, by the way. Yeah. This, this is my full time job. This, yeah. is, this is not. This is how I pay my it's, bills. Yeah, how it's not a hobby. But no. it's also a calling, like like it is yes. a job because we live in a in, in a material world that uh -huh. requires yeah. money, so it's a job. But it's also a calling. Yeah. You know, because oh, this is this is my magical practice. Yeah. And yeah. and this is something that also a lot of other occultists or, or magical practitioners might not understand. They just think I'm a devotional artist. I'm a sacred artist who's honoring the gods. This is my magical practice. Yeah. Um. This is something I live every single day. Uh. This is every moment of my day, my entire lifestyle, what I eat, um, how I exercise, how I take care of my body, the things in my household, every single thing that I do in my life is, is governed by my practice and is part of my iconography, everything. Yeah. So what, what people who want to commission from me, they're commissioning me because they know that they're going to get a living God out of it. They know yeah. that my work is legitimate and authentic. And, I, and there are professional Egyptologists who, who endorse my work and who know that what I'm doing is authentic. So um, I, I stand by my work. I stand by everything that I do. 
Um, I can relate. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're working on two very different things. I mean, I'm selling, you know, uh, uh, you know, a $7 candle. So it's, it's different, but I mean, I can relate because it's part of my daily magical practice and part of creating in a magical way. Um, it's not just, it's not just physical creation. It's not just, it's not practical magic. It's transforming you spiritually mm -hmm. when you're, when you're creating, um, uh, like that, it's, it's, it's the highest levels of, of magic in a sense, as opposed, you know, like some people would look at it as just being like, like a low magic sort of operation. And that's not, it can be, don't get me wrong. It can be, but when you're dedicating your life, um, in service to others in a magical way, it's, it's magic, but it's also a, a spiritual process for you. And, and yes, um, and for the deities and for the deities and for the deities too. It's yeah. But you, you grow and evolve with that work. It's not, you know, um, like, like I said, you can create in a purely low magic way and, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. has it, its value, you know, I'm certainly not knocking that. But no, uh, no, yeah, no. there's there's that spiritual component component that that uh, that um, you know you grow and transform through the act of creation. Absolutely. And, and with you uh, creating these these cult icons, that you know it's so much more of a, a personal, intimate relationship with those gods through that act of creation. Oh, uh, absolutely. It it. it yeah, it's again, you know, we call it uh, a living because we we live in a world where we have to, you know, produce something yes. for money, whether mm -hmm. you're producing product or service. Um, but it's it's my lifestyle. I mean, I can spend all mm -hmm. day in my ritual room in my temple mm -hmm. creating magic. And I may only get on a busy day, I may only get an hour in total of my personal daily practice. Right, right. But I also just spent eight hours in my temple creating, making magic. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, it it's a good trade-off. I mean, it would be a different story if I was like, oh, I don't feel like doing anything today. I'm just going to binge watch television then there there is no trade-off from only doing an hour of daily practice and then just watching television I'm you know so yeah um that 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 act of magic is uh um for for a personal spiritual practice has has a place definitely definitely and you also wrote a book I've written, I've written, um, yes, I have written four books um, that are going to be published. Um, the first is- Oh, Sacred I only Curses. knew about one. <clears throat> so- We're, we're releasing, I, yeah, I've written, I've written four books and basically actually, so three of those 
which I consider my magnum opus. They, they were part of a work that was supposed to be called Return to Babylon. Okay. And that consisted of all the material that we wound up having to, to cut into three books because no publishing company will publish. It, the manuscript wound up being like 900 pages. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. what we had to wind up doing was making a tough decision of saying, we're going to split the material in three places where there are obvious places where we could have yeah, them as yeah. three separate manuscripts and publish them separately with the hope that one day we'll be in a position where, or somebody will be interested enough where I will be able to publish the work as it was intended to be. Right. Yeah. Okay. But, say, yeah. We're not going to talk about those books because oh, that okay. is a good excuse to have you back for another episode. Okay. So, oh, I okay. You want me back for another episode? Well, because you know it, what? It makes it, it make, you have you have a huge tome, so huge it had to be split up into three books. Yeah. So uh, obviously that's worth talking about. Um, so, so that gives me an excuse to invite you back for, for another. Oh, wow. I'm so happy so, I get to come back. Let's talk about your book that's coming out shortly. Okay. Yeah. So sacred verses, mm -hmm. sacred verses is a, an initiatory work. It's also a magical work. And I, I really did have to think very hard about whether or not it was appropriate for me to publish it because it's the most, it en encompasses my very, very personal magical utterances, not, not things from the body of traditional literature that I draw in, in my comedic practice, but my, my, I, I have my own personal magical practice as well that draws upon my own gnosis and, and what my own guidance has revealed and allowed me to experience. Sacred verses are a set of magical utterances or spells. They're also guided meditations. They also conserve that purpose. And these are the very works that guide me in all of my magical workings. They are my personal magical workings. And so initially I, I did not intend on publishing this work. And, and I, I intended that this was going to be my own manuscript for my own use so that everything would be written very clearly and I, I would have it for my own use. Mm -hmm. But then I had friends who I shared some of the material with my very, very close magical friends. And they said, you know something, you need to think seriously about publishing this. You really need to think about this. And they kept going on at me and on at me and giving me advice and telling me. And so I really did think about it. And I asked permission from my sources and and asked if, if that was something that I could do. And every time I did divination, every time I did meditation, I got the confirmation that, that, that there was no conflict, that this was fine. And I still kind of felt 
like maybe this was something I didn't want to, to publish, but so we shelved it. And then I was referred to a publishing company. They said they were going to publish it. And then the publishing company gave me the runaround. They had all these different things and it, it, long story short, it wound up not working out. So I, so then I said, okay, this is a sign. I'm really not supposed to publish this material. So shelved it. And um, my husband kept, <laughs> kept bothering me and saying, you need to publish this manuscript. Um, what's your problem? And so finally, finally, uh, we, we are, we're, we're publishing the manuscript and I, I'm at peace about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that people will be very surprised because they're probably people are expecting something comedic and it is not comedic. There are some of the verses have, can't, could ha be shown to have that influence, but right. it is not, it is not comedic. Sacred verses embody something that a, a way of engaging the gods through magic and the ancestors and spirits in a way that for me, when, when the material through meditation, all I can say is that really it felt like automatic writing. When I was producing this manuscript, I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I would wake up in a state where I felt the movement of energy. I would do a meditation and then I would sit for two and a half or three hours and I would write without stopping. I did not control the material. I did not compose the material the way I usually compose poetry because I am a poet. I let the material write itself. And I didn't try and influence or control it. And, and the material can be applied to magicians and practitioners from any number of traditions, whether you are Wiccan, whether you are ceremonial magician, whether you're comedic, whether rega regardless of where you are, mm -hmm. I think that anyone who subscribes to paganism or subscribes to any of the magical traditions could pick up sacred verses and can find a transformative way to vocalize and engage their spirits, their deities, their own guidance, and, and have very legitimate, powerful experiences. Right. So that's- and when, when does it become available? Um, right now it's looking like mid-August. Of course, as anybody who's published a book knows with the, with the editing process, um, you do your edits and the publishing company, they have their standards, they have their, their things and they want you to come back and say, now you need to change this, this, and this because of the format. Yeah. So we're publishing mid-August, it looks like probably, first it will be a hardcover uh, and then probably the next week, a week later, the soft cover version will be available. We will have a Kindle version available after that. So it's going to go to all the formats, but eventually Excellent. the first week, it'll be a hardcover. That was really important to me because I felt like the sacred verses deserve to have a nice hardcover edition um, to be a bit more elegant, to be a bit more something that people would want to use in their temple and their sacred space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I think we should wrap up. Okay. Um, but before we go, let now 
every like all your links and and whatnot is going to be in the show notes anyways for the viewers so the viewers can just mm-hmm. click and 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 uh you know follow you on social media and go to your website and whatnot but um uh let everyone know where they can follow you and uh about your website and and all that good stuff okay so my main website um is www.icons i-c-o-n-s of kmt.com.com icons of kemet.com but spelled kmt that's my main website or and you can get to all my other websites by going there by the way okay or my blog and you can get to my store and my main website through my blog is www.scribe s-c-r-i-b-e dot icons of kmt.com excellent Um, and you can get to my store you can get to all my links through through those i have a store we're also launching a second store as well which is going to have expanded apparel um a shoe collection and all kinds of other things i've designed Um, yeah so there's going to be all those things aside from everything that people already see that i have and then obviously the book is coming out and um yeah i'm and the blog is where people can see all my updates daily of of my work as it's progressing and and what i'm doing with my commissions and everything else and well as well as my words of inspiration for the day and stuff like that and uh, you're on twitter uh yeah at tamasu so at p t a h m a s s u that's on my twitter handle and same thing on Instagram, I think. Um, but you can get to my Instagram. I mean, like um, I said, I, I'm I'm gonna have it in the show notes. So I yeah, mean, if, yeah. But I'm I'm looking I'm looking for you now on Instagram. Um, You're not following me on Instagram? Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm. Yeah. Oh, okay. It, it, it's just um, Tom Masu. That that's it. Yeah at yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but like i said that's it's going to be in the show notes so it's no big deal okay so okay fabulous yeah excellent well thank you thank you so much for coming on um the lux files i really appreciate it and uh thank you for uh for uh letting me make it a a long episode oh Uh, gosh you know we didn't the funny thing is is that i had so much other material prepared that we didn't even scratch even half of my influences or the other teachers that I've had. I mean, it's. Well, that's like I said, that just gives me an excuse to have you come back. Oh, I'm so excited. I mean, it's, it's, it's been so much fun. I mean, it's as simple Please. as that. Um, you know, um, I mean, realistically, I, we probably could have gone on for another three hours. Oh, I yes. Know, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do a six hour episode. You know what I mean? No, we can, so, we can do another one. So yeah. So, uh, splitting them up is, is great. And, uh, yeah. So no, I, I, I really appreciate you, uh, coming Thank you. on. And Thank I'm you gonna, so much. Uh, I'm going to look forward to, uh, having you back and we can, you know, talk about, you know, whatever we did talk about this time around. And uh, and I could do reading yeah. from my books because, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to be able to introduce some of some of the things from my up and coming books. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're here to promote. Definitely. We're here to make money. You know what I mean? So that's that's uh, that's what you're here oh, for. We have to. Yeah, we have to eat. You know, we have to 
I couldn't do all the wonderful things that I do if I didn't have an income. You know, exactly. I would be working full time at some corporation. Yeah. And I wouldn't have time to do any of the work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so there you go. I can be a slave to corporate America or I can be in charge and do something and make a contribution to, to the community. Yeah. You know? Slave of corporate America or servant of the gods. I mean, it's, it's an easy choice. Exactly. Choice. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you. Follow Tomasu on Twitter and Instagram, website, <laughs> blog, check them out. His work's amazing. And, thank you. uh, and of course, in the show notes is um, the link, my link that gets you to my website, YouTube channel, all of my social media. So click on that, go there, follow me because I'm cute and interesting. You are cute. I am cute. Oh, I know how cute I am. Like, you let's, are so cute. Let's be honest. I own a mirror. So I know. You, you are. Yeah. Yeah. I should induct so, you to, to my harem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lux Files. You'll find all the guest links in the show notes, as well as the link www.laylokanzawin.com slash links. That link will get you to my page of links, where you can then go to my Laylokanzawin website, The Lux Files page, and my Laylokanzawin YouTube channel that has all the Lux Files videos. It also has all my social media links there, so you can follow me and The Lux Files. And don't forget, subscribe to the Lux Files wherever you get your podcasts. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving me a review. Until next time.